Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Europe United's Eurochat series of podcasts. Our podcasts are presented in cooperation with the Communicating Europe Initiative and the CEI was established in 1995 to raise awareness about the European Union and to improve the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues. And you can find out more about the CEI by visiting our website at Europe United EU or by going to the Department of Foreign Affairs website at dfa.ie. I'm Ken Sweeney, Chief Editor of Europe United and I'm joined today by my fellow Europe United Editor Christos Muziveras. How are you, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. You have been away for a few weeks. Uh, I have, yes. You weren't in Two Europe, weeks. though, sure you weren't? No, this time I cheated on Europe and I went to Latin America. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's kind of like European in a sense. It Where is. did you go? It is. Uh, Argentina and Woo-hoo. Brazil. Uh, the southern part of Brazil is very European. Were you sussing out Mercosur? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting some cattle over there, were you? Yeah, I'm trying to b- build bridges between Europe and Latin America. <laughs> okay, you've been building bridges fair enough then. <laughs> Okay, guys, our show today is discussion on youth and Europe, and we have three guests with us from different sides of the political spectrum. We're joined today by Kathleen Kerens from Volt Era, which is a pan-European political movement, Anna Herovan from uh, Labour Youth uh, Wing, and Conor McArdle from Young Fine Gael. Welcome to you all, uh, Eurochat. How are you guys? Very good. Welcome. Anna, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. How are you? I'm very good. Anna, tell us a little bit about you and Labour Youth. How did you get involved? Yeah, so um, I'd be originally from Galway myself, but um, I went to university in UCC and uh, I suppose I studied politics down there and um, I would have uh, been very engaged in student politics. Um, I would have been involved in um, campaigns to do with marriage equality with um, Repeal the Eighth um, campaign um, where I would have been a student leader. Later last year, um, I was involved in um, the campaign to re-elect Michael D. Higgins, President of Ireland. Um, And I suppose through... um, I suppose my involvement in politics and the youth scene and that would have led me I suppose to have kind of conversations about equality and justice mm-hmm. and, and the this was most natural fit there was um, led me to to the UC Labour branch and uh, eventually to Labour Youth and uh, so I suppose that's why I'd be involved and I'd be you know um, active as a as a campaigner and, and an uh, activist in in the core branch as well. So, so exciting times um, for young people uh, and for women in particular but yeah. you must have come across a lot of people from different sides of the political kind so it was a good time to find out what other yeah. people were thinking about Absolutely um, you know I, I'd be from Galway myself which uh-huh. is a, a, so was a conservative heartland and you know so that there would have been a lot of people back home who would be very um, aligned with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael mm-hmm. um, and I would have had those conversations at home as well with friends and family And um, but yeah I suppose being involved in, in student politics um, and in UCC uh, it's kind of great you know to, to study down there and to, to kind of meet people of all different spectrums and, and have those kind of debates and conversations and it's always kind of fairly lively especially in Cork so uh, so yeah I think you know it's important I suppose to challenge your own opinions and to be challenged by other people and I suppose that's why it's good to, to be on the panel with the two lads as well today. Mm, and so you would have met people like did courageous Connor here. <laughs> Connor, how are you? It's not too bad Ken how are you? Yeah I'm good tell us a little bit about yourself Connor. you're uh, a man of different kinds I'm a man of many different kinds yeah I suppose my involvement uh, in sort of funny geopolitics uh, it's quite a recent thing as well I did a bit of work for Neil Richmond in the Dollar or in the Shannon uh, since the start of this year and a friend of mine he was setting up the branch up in Queens and so I suppose that attracted me to Young Finnegan that's how I got involved and I suppose I've always as you know uh, had a very keen interest in European issues and European affairs mm-hmm. as well so you were involved with a couple of cross-border organizations both in the UK and Ireland yeah uh, so we did work with uh, New Europeans Ireland an NGO and sort of trying to strengthen the cross-border initiative and I suppose Brexit has sort of rallied everybody into action mm-hmm. so there's really no excuse not to try and get involved in some way or another I think it's one of the illustrated political climate where you almost get the feeling that you sort of have to do something mm-hmm. and I think 
that's maybe a positive for young people in that way as well. Mm-hmm. And was somebody like Sinn Féin probably a bit too radical or too one-sided for you? I suppose there's elements of that, but there's also elements of very little really happening and that mm. there's no representation, there's no Stormont. Mm. And I, I felt they didn't represent me and they didn't really represent my best interests as well. Okay, so you were looking to the future with regards to, say... Yeah, all Ireland sort of thing. This is the thing. The thing that attracted me to to Finnegill was the, the the sort of responsibility, the responsibility in terms of constitutional nationalism. In that, yes, there is a wish for a reunification of Ireland, but mm-hmm. the way the the manner in that takes is not this magical border pole in the morning, and yeah. we suddenly wake up and we see Jerry wandering down the streets and everything's fine. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be very, very carefully managed. Mm-hmm. And I think the Taoiseach said it very well when he was up at the. Uh, the Fela in West Belfast uh, and there was a debate with the party leaders and he says the reality of it is the United Ireland will be a, a brand new state and mm-hmm. we have to treat it as such and have to treat it with the cautious the cautiousness as such and not to repeat the mistakes on the unionist population in the north as what happened to the nationalist population mm-hmm. nearly a de- So a you're preparing the ground so to speak for the next generation? Well, preparing the ground and just I think giving a, a sort of a progressive uh, progressive responsible alternative to the parties in the north as well mm. Col you're coming at it from a slightly different angle you're yeah. a member of a pan-European organisation tell us a little bit about yourself and why you've come in from that little angle because both guys here are looking at it from a national point of view yeah exactly I think one of I think both of the guys they have had experience in politics and were driven by political means whereas I would have been pretty apolitical initially and I think it was only recently that I started to get motivated to get involved in politics with the rise of Trump and the rise of nationalism. Mm -hmm. So I've already heard the word nationalism thrown around or national politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, that's a bit of a a bugbear. I consider, like, Volt, we mentioned, uh, excuse me, I think Anna mentioned that, uh, you know, they're part of Labour youth. And I think one of the areas that she wanted us to rephrase was left wing or wing party and like that was one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are disenfranchised with politics now because I think this and you mentioned in your opening speech about the spectrum from across the spectrum mm-hmm. we think the spectrum doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. we we think left wing right wing that is history it's uh now what we look towards is people from all different backgrounds and ideas and beliefs coming together and trying to find sci- scientific solutions for the society in which we live. Okay. So we don't identify with... So you're talking, you're talking about in the sense of having an almost a party by consensus? We're, yeah, we consider ourselves a scientific party. We're not backed by ideolo- ideology in terms of, uh, you know, the left or socialism or, you know, capitalism. We just look for the best solutions using scientific evidence. And that's the, the basis of our party overall. And... The pan-European aspect is because we believe that we are all citizens in a global world and Europe is a regional power and why should we not try to solve these issues like climate change, sustainability, migration at like a global level or a European level rather than everybody at national politics trying to horse trade over different areas. We think it's a dysfunctional system from the beginning and that's one of the driving forces for Vault Europa. And tell us a little bit about yourself, though. Where where do you come from and what sort of background are you in? Um, My background is I'm from Dublin. Mm -hmm. I've uh, grown up in Dublin. I did the Erasmus program. Mm -hmm. um, And I think that really helped me to uh, gain admiration for Europe and what Europe was about and also Mm -hmm. realise how similar we all are. We all have similar... We all have the same needs, you know, Mm -hmm. basic needs. But in, in a broader sense, we also have 
struggle with societal problems and uh, the environment, sustainability are two overarching ones that I just mm -hmm. mentioned. But uh, I think I just fell in love with, with what Europe stood for and I wanted to continue to be a part of that and the fact that Brexit and the EU is kind of in decline was really a spurring on of my motivations to try and do something to stop the downfall of the European Union. I think we all have the same aspirations and probably look at it from different angles, I suppose. But we want to start off maybe and talk about that in the sense of the European elections. Um, they were um, different in many ways because we probably had a uh, more balanced ending. Um, Anna, there seemed to be a, a better result for, for the left. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think there was uh, more of a focus on the EU elections, considering um, you know that uh, I suppose Brexit and the the topics to do with I suppose the future of, of the European Union I think were more prevalent in, in this debate. And certainly, you know, I would have you know obviously be involved in politics and would talk to a lot of young people who are interested in it. But I, I do think that there was a bit more notice taken by by people who mightn't have been you know aware of the issues or, or mightn't you know have have necessarily cared about um, you know uh, electing MEPs or or the, the EU elections, I think there was definitely a, a conversation that was had there and, and an interesting kind of um, take on the future of Europe. And I do think it was... Um, good for, for the left. I think, you know, um, the Greens certainly benefited. Um, it was, you know, I suppose from a Labour perspective, we were maybe disappointed not to um, have a representative there. Um, but I suppose we're, we're kind of happy with the, the campaigns, you know, that were run and, and you know, that we had that conversation and, you know, I suppose those kind of things come out in elections and um, there's definitely something to improve on for the next time. Two points on that. You had Timmermans Europe-wide doing very well, mm -hmm. but on a local scale here, you probably... Did you, did you find that maybe your candidates were a little bit too old? Um, I, I think we had really, really strong candidates. I think um, certainly I would have been very involved with um, or very close to the Sheila Noonan campaign. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought she was a, a fantastic candidate um, as a, a female trade unionist as well. Mm. Um, she has a, a pretty stellar career. And I think that um, she was a, a very strong person for us to put forward in the South. Mm. And we were very disappointed, I suppose, to, to see her kind of just fall out outside um, of the of the candidates um, who, who were, I suppose, um, you know, they're kind of fighting for, for a spot. So, um, you know, I think that uh, the, the decisions were made um, at, the, at the top, like who were the best people for, for the party. And I think we all rode behind them. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we were trying to, I suppose, progress that conversation um, to talk about the issues that mattered and about the future of Europe and justice and equality and, and that social justice, which would be a very important thing and something that we would take into, you know, obviously we're part of the, the S&D grouping in in, um, in uh, Europe and, and I suppose like those issues are... are and they gained more seats as well in Europe. Yeah, Which absolutely. overall was a good thing, but they did absolutely. that mainly on probably on a social justice rather than a green vote. Yeah. Yeah, and Carl, you got uh, you got a seat in Europe, didn't you? Overall, yeah. vote. So who was that and what, who was the person behind that? Damien Boasliga was the person who was elected for us mm -hmm. uh, in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, he got over 500,000 votes and 0.7% of the electorate are in which is considerable considering that the party was only founded two years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was, Germany has been like a major place where we have got votes because of, I know you guys mentioned the green wave and sustainability in the environment is very close to what it is to be a part of Volt. We're also different to the Greens, but um, we joined the Green faction in European Parliament, but that was on the basis that we wanted to collaborate with uh, people who would be most similarly minded to us to bring about European policies. And we didn't want to sit in the, the miscellaneous section of European Parliament and sit with uh, historically uh, extremists who 
you know, communist, uh, fascist. So I wanted to avoid that and work constructively with other members of, of parliament because that's in line with our views. No matter who they are, like uh, that, that was that, that was the driving force for that. So we're very delighted. I think that's kind of given us a platform to to move forward with now that we have our uh, European Parliament member. And uh, I think one of the questions with the, or one of the ideas that's considered with or that a lot aligns with us a lot is Greta Thunberg. And I think um, I'm not sure if we're going to come to that, uh, but she is somebody that very much aligns with Volt's ideology because of the fact that we consider ourselves to be a scientific party and she uses data to and evidence uh, to use for her argument and it's not necessarily ideologically driven it's just the evidence and we consider ourselves to be the party of Greta Thunberg to a degree not her party but a party that supports her scientific based method about Greta Thunberg now, uh, is a, you see that's a lot of uh, criticism against this girl, which I don't understand why, but there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a movement that says, oh, she's funded by such and such. Even recently I, I read something in the internet that she's funded even by George Soros, which is, I don't know how <laughs> truthful <laughs> that is. Uh, why do you think it's so much... Um, negative uh, sentiment against Greta and the likes of her? Well, I think, first of all, there is the obvious in that she's someone who has a very, very strong voice and a lot of people don't like being told plain facts. Mm -hmm. There's a clear element of sexism and ageism there as well and that, oh, this young girl doesn't know what she's Absolutely. talking about. And I think that's very, very relevant. If it was a young young lad, I don't think the vitriol would have been as strong. Yes. And that's a There's a deeply uh, a misogynistic undertone with definitely. a lot of the criticism and a lot of the articles that are... Bald old men. There, there was a great article in the Irish Times that outlined that, and it says, why is Greta Thunberg so troubling for middle-aged men? And yeah. they just don't like... And the fact I think that she's right is even more infuriating. And it's just... There's <laughs> some middle-aged men. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> we, we have quite a few who are agreeing with Greta's message, and rightly so. And I, I think because also her message as well is mm. so final and so mm. you know there has to be something done and people have wanted to stick their head in the sand for so long and they just can't ignore it anymore she's also adopting very modern delivery methods as well which mm. is very uncomfortable because we're on a podcast so we don't have to worry about terminology but she's delivering the, the lack of bullshit that she's delivering yeah. in her terminology which yeah. is perfect for young people yeah um, i think she's th she's threatening to maybe i suppose that old guard and that old establishment in, in terms of you know that you know this is obviously you know such an important thing this is you know her life's passion and you know she's not uh, maybe tainted by you know um uh, i suppose a lot of um the conversations that would kind of you know be stale in politics and i suppose you know she is that 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 face of the revolution like fridays for future seeing those school kids even for me like and I'd, I'd be a young woman obviously but like you know seeing that that kind of that future generation that is threatening it's threatening for the old guard it's threatening for that male pale stale um i suppose you know establishment and uh, i think you know there like i said there is a, a deeply misogynistic undertone in some of the the commentary on it that maybe wouldn't be there if if uh if you know it was a, a young man who was leading the change, the the thing fascinating thing I find about Greta is um, obviously uh, to, to be, for sixteen years old to be able to cross the Atlantic with on on a, on a boat. Somebody is finding all that, uh, but the thing is that um, I find fascinating that uh, very encouraging that. Uh, 
uh, a young girl is becoming like a symbol of uh, youth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I prefer, uh, I have a niece, and I prefer if young people uh, inspired to become like her than inspired by role models that we yeah. see in like a love island or, or, or <laughs> shows like that. Uh, rather than my niece to become inspired by Greta than somebody who is participating yeah. in love island. Well, so for me, it's 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 it's, it's um, a very positive uh, thing to have. And also, yeah. if, even if some people say, "Oh, climate change is a myth" or whatever, all these kind of weird things I read on the internet and Facebook and social media, what uh, even even if we accept that 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 fact, then then um, uh, why not try to take to change our economy to something more climate or uh, earth fr- friendly uh, than uh, than keeping the, the way things are? Yeah, I, I think one thing that was very interesting. I'm sure a lot of people might have seen her speech in the United Nations, where you know she was very emotional. She was impassioned. She's saying, "I shouldn't be here. You know, I should be in school." And I think actually that's a sort of you know is there a deficiency there in the leadership globally the fact that it does take this young girl um, from Scandinavia to have to come over and and to you know or to be the face of this movement and and bring that message why aren't you know the the elected leaders the representatives you know um, why where is that global leadership on this issue you know it shouldn't you know really you know be left on the shoulders of such a young person on on the generation on that teenage generation that we do see on the streets on for on fridays or you know in the town squares around the world um you know so i think that they're they're you know we have to kind of look at you know our leaders and you know people that are coming from ireland and people on a global scale and a european scale i think but but another question that I have to ask you guys because you're all in political parties here. Who what are your leaders saying to you? Because you are all in political parties, so you must be saying to yourselves, "Well, we better get up off our backsides mm-hmm. and do something as well." Um, Connor, uh, well, I think we'll be honest. Uh, the green issue was seen as something for a very very long time that wasn't prevalent in just terms of would it win votes. Mm. And I think that is a feeling on the part of all political parties in Ireland and indeed across the continent and the world. But I think what we have seen this year especially is we've reached the point of no return where it's almost impossible to ignore yeah, but it the, the parties must be seen to be doing something at a youth well, level so what, a, what's a, going a, on if, what's going on in, in your at a youth league? level there's, there's many things going on we, we we're having there's many uh uh, in, uh, initiatives that's being put forward, policy papers that's been put forward to government. I think Young Finnegan has quite an advantage. That, you know, the party is in government, so there is access to ministers, access to people there, and there has been those discussions taking place, and there has been pay- policy papers put forward. And I think that we are seeing Finnegan committing to real, genuine climate action, like for example, the the, the ending of offshore oil production, the planting of uh, so many trees on still gigging for gas, unused. Though. Well, yes, that's true as well, and, and that's one of the points that comes back. And there is the uh, the planting of the, the trees on the unused bog land as well. And I think someone said the other day that, well, it's going to kill the bog land, but this is bog land that's been stripped mm-hmm. by uh, peat or turf, and so there would be nothing on it anyway, so this is why we're planting these trees in that regard. And what about Volt? I mean, you're a relatively new party, so how? what is your green initiative? And do you have a youth policy as well? And how do you tie the two together? We, we have many green issues. For ex- like, uh, We actually practice what we preach as well. So across mm-hmm. Europe, we organise cleanups, we organise kayaking, we organise kayaking where we clean plastic out of rivers, uh-huh. uh, we clean up illegal dumping, we um, we don't use plastics at any of our events. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we do have events, we discourage uh, airplane usage. So across Europe, that includes uh, taking trains or boats where possible. Um, and going to our event in Sofia, uh, they've organized uh, buses to come from all over the places in Germany and Italy, where our main core base is, and the Netherlands, for people to get there to avoid flying. 
Um, so that's what that's what we actually do. When you look at both the member Fine, or Fine Gael and Labour, who have both been in power over the past 20 years, and the fact that Ireland has had extremely poor uh, advancement and development in terms of green initiatives compared to the rest of European, the rest of Europe, it's I think it's uh, it's embarrassing actually to be Irish and to look at the not to be Irish, but to look at the uh, how s slow Ireland has been to adapt to this. And I think some parties, you know, are beholden to the meat producers and stuff like this who are uh, uh, wary of, of climate of uh, climate policies. But um, to, for, just to come back to um, the point, like we've known about climate change for since Al Gore. I remember being in primary school mm -hmm. and going to watch Al Gore in the cinema. Mm. And then, you know, how many Labour and Fine Gael governments have we had since then? And like, we're still here, nearly, it's nearly 2020. And, and still, like, Ireland is so behind. We look at the top 10 companies in Europe, European companies that produce the most carbon dioxide, okay? Um, number one is a Polish coal, coal power plant. The, ne the, the next eight are German coal plants. And the number 10 is Ryanair. Mm -hmm. What is Ireland doing to offset its carbon footprint? Like, it's, we have the 10th biggest carbon producer in Europe. But some would say Ryanair are no longer, you know, an Irish company by definition. Well, that's they, the thing. I mean, they, the they've encompassed themselves through oh, Europe. It's not our problem then. Uh, I don't know. I think I just get, um, I just feel that Irish government is, you know, greenwashing that, that uh, and uh, I, it's glad to see at least we're trying to greenwash now. <laughs> Before we, we weren't even greenwashing. Before we were, you know, being sceptical and, um, but now I, I, I welcome the fact that we're trying to even greenwash at least, but, and, but, uh, and we know, I've saw Leo Radcar come out with those, you know, hybrid buses uh, that are to come on stream as well. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, I feel that uh, Ireland is, well, I, I know Ireland is extremely backwards when it comes to... Anna, Labour's doing nothing for the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would dispute that. I think that, you know, um, Labour has been a voice there um, that has been pushing a progressive agenda. And uh, I suppose, you know, we would, obviously, uh, green issues are, are kind of very core, certainly, um, to Labour Youth's message and uh, I think, you know, any party that, you know, hasn't kind of sat up and, and taken a view from, certainly from recent elections um, and with the protests that are going on, any party in Ireland that doesn't adopt um, fairly strong um, green policies in the future is going to fall behind and I think that that's something I think you know to be bipartisan for a little I think that's something that we can all agree is that it's better to see green issues being brought to the agenda and um, and for parties to be talking about this um, I suppose we would be um, you know obviously pushing the government to do more in terms of the targets that are being set um, you know we are you know falling far short in terms of our C CO2 emissions um, and I think that the government there, there's a lot of talk and to burn the pun, hot air coming from uh, the Fine Gael government, but actually we have yet to see, I think, you know, very um, kind of uh, strong changes uh, and, we, and we are running out of time and really there needs to be, um, I suppose, a, a, you know, a change in um, government and a change in um, the the view, I suppose, for how how we can, can become a leader in Europe in terms of reducing our emissions. I just want to um, just kind of go to a related, a related issue. Obviously, we, we all have answers with regards to the youth and what the future of the climate issue should be. The youth, with regards to the EU, do you all think that the EU has done enough to invest in youth policies? Now, I generally think that the EU invests far too much in the youth, and I think that as a result, we have Brexit. 
Now that's just my opinion, and um, I've spoken to a lot of people my age, and and they seem to think the same thing. But then again, I'm prepared to live with that because um, I think that you need to invest in the youth. So I'm I'm all for an equal balance, right? But there are lots of people in the UK, for example, who think that there's not enough investment in, say, middle middle aged people, and they're carrying the can, so to speak, in terms of taxpayers and so on. But I want to hear your opinion. I want to know, with regards to the European youth. When it comes to investing in the European youth, we have Erasmus. Mm-hmm. That goes without saying. I'd like to know what your opinion on Erasmus is, for example. So I'll start with you, Carl. Do you think that in regards to the European youth, just in a general sense, you know, we have all these kind of festivals, we have all these poli- you know, these, these um, free journeys, for example, on rail and so on. But I want your, on, your overall opinion on, the, on how the EU invests in the European youth. And I want, you know what, want to know what do you think about that? Should there be more investment in it? I think that's a good point that you just made or a good question that you raised. Um, I've not really thought about that before. I think you're probably right. There is, there does seem to be a lot more investment in the youth and there hasn't been as much investment in uh, older generations. Um, I think the future is always going to be in the youth. So I think that makes sense. Which does, should make sense, yeah. But I, I think you're right as well. I think um, the, maybe the, there is, an, as you say, uh, there's an element of carrying the can for older people for the uh, policies and institutions for young people. I think that is changing. There's Erasmus Plus now, for example, mm-hmm. which is uh, for anyone who is uh, wants to go back to uh, uh, postgraduate education. Yeah, but people work and they have children, and that's not a very viable option. You can, I think, you can do it through work though as well. No, but still, you know, when you have two kids and I three think, kids, I think this is the key issue here as well, and that. Europe is focused heavily on, on the youth because it's easier to reach young people mm. in that regard. Like you look at the engagement, you have Erasmus, you have the European Youth Parliament, you have things like that. For someone who's in their 30s with two kids and working a job and paying a mortgage, they're not going to go on a jaunt off to Strasbourg for a couple of days. So I think the element is Europe has looked at this and probably seen it's more cost effective to in, invest in young people. You get more out of the money you put into it rather than trying to But my engage. question is, is it working? And I, are you getting, I, I, are you getting I, payback I, on it? I think it's working. I think you see a very, very pro-European young age group especially here mm-hmm. in Ireland and across, across the continent as well right. and even in Britain okay. and unfortunately for Britain it's probably coming too late unfortunately. yes exactly and, and, I think so yeah and is that a failure of the European project I, I don't think so I think you know they've done their best in terms of engagement and I think it's incredibly difficult to engage with that demographic that already has that already has a lot of their political views and beliefs established very very firmly by that time they reach that age okay. I do believe uh, Sorry, uh, I do support the programs uh, like Erasmus because I, from what I see is um, uh, both here in Ireland and my back home uh, in my home country in Greece that uh, generations, the young people are feel more European, where, and that's I think comes down to travel and st- studying abroad, than my older generations that I know that they, uh, they just don't feel that they feel Greek, they feel Irish, or they feel whatever the nationality is. So I, for me, traveling and opening the borders and uh, having a, ra- a program like, like Erasmus is crucial for the future uh, even though some people accuse Erasmus always like a, like a drinking parties or festivals it doesn't matter young people go there meet people young people from all, all over, over Europe uh, they enjoy themselves and they get to know Europe and they feel European Do like you, you you did you know you, you feel a connection if you don't and you, if you feel in, uh, uh, studying only in your own country then you don't you don't broaden your horizons just on that I, like, I was chatting with my friend the other day and we were saying he was saying like my father or his father 
would feel a lot more in common with someone who was American their age. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think if you look at someone yeah. our age, we'd be a lot more in common yeah. with someone from Europe. You know? True. Mm-hmm. True. That's that's, that's, that's indicative that's, of that. That says something. Yeah. Anna, can I ask you a question? You work for you. You're, you're Labour, so a lot of people would say you, you, your party's more working class and so on. Would it be true to say that Erasmus can sometimes be seen as elitist? No, I don't think so. I think I think you know, there's not many people I think who've gone through the Erasmus program that would come in back this in, country, in anyway. this country. In this country, that would come back and say that they they didn't you know uh, have a positive experience. That they well, didn't. Are people from like working class areas taking it up on it though? Um, well, absolutely. Well, you have to look at I suppose at the barriers that there are for mm. people entering education. So I suppose yeah. you know for um, you know, students who are participating in the Erasmus program, they have to I suppose get to, yeah. to university, and and a lot of that is linked with money and with funding mm. and. Um, you know the investment in, in higher education is, in this country is severely um, deficient. So that's um, where the problem is, isn't yes. it? Yes. So it's it's also about have like students having that access to opportunity in order to be able so to how, avail how do, of how the, do we the solve Erasmus. That? How is that? How is that? Problem? Well, um, like I just said, investment in higher education. Mm. Um, I suppose you know uh, Labour this week came out with its alternative budget 2020, where um, the party committed to reducing third level fees by a thousand euro, mm. and I suppose a lot of uh, other kind of factors that are linked with that. In what about free? What about free Erasmus for percentage of people in each country? I'm, I'm being naive here. What? Why does that work? Uh, do you mean um, like the students that are taken? On no. The what about just like what about um, just sort of some sort of free type of Erasmus? How about like some pe- people from working class areas? Well, I know that um, students who go on the Erasmus program do get funding, um, and they get um, you know I know with the French department in UCC, which I would have had some contact with um, through my studies. Um, you know, students do get a you know can apply for grants and and do get money. I suppose to, to go over, and I suppose in, in certain you know uh, European countries, the the cost of living is you know uh-huh. is you know decisively much cheaper than than yeah. living in Ireland and renting certainly with the accommodation crisis you know rent in, in you know a lot of continental places is a lot is a lot cheaper and um so i suppose uh you know again it's about having that access to opportunity and, and how, how would you guys feel about say somebody in second level education getting an opportunity to have a free holiday for maybe a week uh, uh, you know a couple of days to experience sort of a pre-Erasmus trip yeah I mean I, I suppose you know maybe leaving the aspect of a free holiday I suppose there it's would not have, really a free holiday yeah, but let's just say a trip you know an example to give them a, an experience of it yeah, so well, that they can I, actually I think for a lot of students that go in Erasmus sometimes it's their first um, time you know uh, really is a, a time you know of you know kind of showing them themselves that they can be independent they can live in another mm. country mm. away from I suppose the home comforts and away from their family and be thrown under a language sort of yeah. course or something yeah. like that. but um, I you know in first year I would have lived with an Erasmus student um, who was from Norway and uh, I know that she went on an exchange program when she mm. was um, a teenager to America. Yeah, my and wife went on one to Austria when she was 14. Yes, yeah, yeah and, and, and so she would have, um, you know, and so when she came to Ireland to do her Erasmus year, um, her uh, grasp of English was, you know, significantly better than some of our other housemates that were from France and that were coming over very much. And a, a big element for them was to, to better their English and was to, I suppose, um, you know, improve their, their kind of language skills, which I think a lot of students in, in Erasmus can benefit from, particularly a lot of Erasmus programs are linked with language courses in universities and in colleges and institutions and I think that um, you know that 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 is a huge thing as well um, for for students going over so uh, but on the whole I think the experience that I have certainly from friends of mine who've been participating in the Erasmus program and from you know living with um, you know people who are on Erasmus I think you know it is uh, great for integration and better integration in Europe and and I, I suppose young students feel more European or feel that connectiveness 
either having lived in a country or having you know spent a semester abroad. Um, so if you were given a blank piece of paper and you had two minutes, what what would you like to write to the EU and say to them, I want to do this for youth? What what would you like to say on that um, piece of paper? I suppose one thing that I feel and uh, a conversation that you know I would have had with people um, is you know uh, voter registration or is you know I, I was very uh, engaged politically. You know the week I turned eighteen, I registered to vote in mm. Galway County Council. Um, you know, so it was it was always something that was very important to me. But um, you know, I didn't have I, I didn't feel that there was a lot of people, you know, when I was growing up, you know, who felt the same as me and, you know, it wasn't until I came to college and, you know, met like minded people who, you know, I had had privilege having that access to education and being able to have the means to go to university in, in Cork and meet people who, you know, had similar opinions to me. So I, I think, you know, a, a big thing as well is just I suppose engaging the youth in the issues or or you know reaching those people who, who feel that you know they, they might know as much so another thing to do with that uh, which I think is linked and there's a lot of people who are working to try and um, bring the voter age down to 16 mm-hmm. so I suppose you know I would like to see investment uh, from European scale maybe into more um, youth voter reg drives mm-hmm. I would have done a lot um, myself through through the SU and, and through um, I suppose the different campaigns and stuff and trying to get those first year students coming in yeah. who are just ready registered to vote trying to get them re- on the register and and that would have been something that I, I spent a lot of time with and so I, I suppose getting that engagement and having those students you know feel that their vote matters I, I, another thing that's linked with that I mean we talk about investment in in um, young people but uh, young people also have to be center to um, the leadership and to be you know um, put in those rooms and in those meetings with p- the decision makers okay. or be the decision makers sure. as well I think that you know uh, th- it's also about having our voice represented on you know uh, on a very kind of senior level and and to have that you voice so you can have all the investment in the world and all the programs but unless you know the ideas and, and kind of the opinions that are taken from the youth are taken up by the leadership and they're listened to um you know there there's still some long way to go before we we have i suppose you know um a lot of those kind of issues brought to the agenda connor <laughs> blank sheet of paper hard follow up there now she's got some good ideas there you're gonna have to work hard get the gloves on blank sheet of paper to the European Union. Yeah, come on, tell me. In, in terms of youth engagement, I, I think if they would just have a coherent structure, there's so many various mm-hmm. strands and so many projects. It's a subdivision of a subdivision of an organisation of an organisation and you can try and trace it. It's like following the crumbs back to somewhere in the European Union. Yeah. I, I think a more coherent structure a more accessible structure for young people is vital as well. I, you know, any young person who wants to get in, involved in the European Union, you just Google the European Union. There's so many pages, there's so many stuff, and they just, they, I can't get my head around it, you know. Yeah. And there's so many organizations, and the opportunities are there. It's trying to find opportunities uh-huh. and try. And I think if they would just have a more coherent structure, a more accessible structure for young people, because what we have, it, it's there. It's just very difficult to find that engagement. Do you find that the funding as well is too complicated as well? So if you're a youth organization and you're looking to get a few bob, it's really, really. Yeah. The funding's complicated, and I feel with that complications, there's money not being wasted, but there's money that can go to really, really worthwhile causes protecting the, for the European project that isn't going to those places as well. Like as you said, if you were say, if you want to set up a, an organisation, whatever, you want a bit of funding for young European engagement, it's very difficult to find how do I get funding for that, and in the end, most people just give up because it's that difficult and that uh, that complex to try and access those funds and try to access that outreach as well. Carl, you obviously got a lot of young people in your organization so you would probably have a lot to say about this so you've obviously already written out that blank piece of paper um yeah no we have a 182 page document okay. that um <laughs> i didn't bring with me today <laughs> this is the synopsis in front of me 
But um, and that goes into like all different areas of policy. Mm. And one of the well, let's go one, brief. Yeah, one of the pillars <laughs> we have is education. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to uh, really expand Erasmus program. They've already. I know the EU has already expanded it with the Erasmus Plus program. I think that kind of tries to address the issues that you've raised there in terms of people from uh, less economically advantaged backgrounds. Um, so people who are doing apprenticeships or who don't go to university or that they can ex- access European grants and travel for their work as well. The awareness of that in Ireland, I'm not so sure if it's a big thing. I know in Germany and France who have large industrial economies with, uh, and things like that where people are getting involved in technical and mechanical studies like that, it, it is a big uh, driver there. And I think Irish people maybe should maybe get invo- more involved with that or we can maybe raise awareness of that in Ireland for people um, in in those professions to avail of Erasmus too. I think your point about making it is it still you know it's still a lot of money to travel and stuff like that and making it free for a certain element of the certain proportion of the population I think it's a great idea. I think you could yeah I think we could definitely incorporate some element of that to try and uh, help people from all walks of life to experience that not just because it is quite expensive to go abroad and uh, I did that in, on Erasmus, like I did Erasmus. And I, we also mentioned doing uh, that Nor- Norwegian girl um, that Anna lived with, like I did that too. I went to France um, for a week, so we did an exchange with my school and a school in Lille. So we did a week in France and then they came over and did a week here. And I think some schools do that. I think it's probably predominantly private schools and maybe that mm. needs to be rolled out across mm, all so schools too, across, yeah. Yeah. across Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys, I'm just in regards to the um, youth as well. There is another question I wanted to finish up on. The idea that um, the youth is generally organized with regards to men and women. When you guys are working in youth organizations, is there a balance there? Is there a lot of, is there an equal balance between men and women? I can see you're putting up your hand there, Carl. One of the driving forces for, for Vault and our membership base is actually women's rights and inclusion mm-hmm. for women. So I know we, we mentioned, you know, different positions and stuff that people might have held in their youth parties. In Vault, we have two positions. So we have a male position and a female position. Uh, that's what we have in Vault era, and that's what we have at the European level as well. So our president, we don't have a president in uh, one person. We have a co-president, so one female president and one male president. And I think that actually does hark back to European roots because the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic, um, they had two consuls every year. And I think I don't understand why we've become fascinated with this one leader approach. I think having two leaders, you get more consensus and uh, more compromise and it works out better for everybody, I think. What happens though if you can't get a woman or a guy? Well, luckily we have had both men and women to be able to take up positions on both sides yet because I think we're a very accepting party. What about transgender? Yeah, that, I knew that question was going to come up there as well. Um, yeah, yeah, we're pro-transgender rights as well. Yeah, but you're going to have to keep expanding on that, are you? No, well, we we don't. I'm not sure if we would. Fit, I think that I, I'm not sure now on this mm. because we haven't actually come across it but yet. But it's going to become a... No, yeah, for it sure. It becomes complicated, I, though. I, if you're going to have to bring in people all the time because if you're not going to get enough people to fill the spots just from an actual body, body point of view, you know, how are you going to do that? Eventually, you might run out of a male or a female so how would you yeah, get that position it's, it's, filled? I think for, for positions like president and co-president, it's a requirement, but not for every single position, it's, it's a requirement. And I think you could have a case where, you know, one male, one transgender, one female, one transgender. I think the idea of 
being inclusive is is the no, overall I, I, value set. I do understand that, but the idea is very honourable. But my, I'm talking about maybe if the guys want to come in on it as well. Anna, what do you think of that idea? Because I'm just talking about from an actual, um, you know, day to day point of view. Um, that if you can't get a female, how do you yeah. get the party running? You could yeah. break the, the situation could break down if you don't have that. You can't yeah. get that person. Um, I suppose a phrase that you know I would have um, heard uh, many times at uh, many kind of different events that I would have um, gone gone to when I was involved in student politics was you cannot be what you cannot see, yeah. and you know yeah. a, a big thing about that is is also getting women into positions of leadership, um, you know, and and having those I suppose female leaders at, you know at the decision making point, um, you know we would have had um, you know uh, Joan Burton who would have um, obviously been leader Very fine leader as well yeah as opposed to yeah. the the two um, you know, major parties in the country that you know have never had a female leader, and it doesn't look like there there is going to be one on the horizon. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I do think that Labour um, has had a very very strong one. We have you know Labour women organisation within the party as well, um, and we would have had um, a lot of new, particularly encouraging to see a lot of councillors, um, new female voices that would have gotten elected um, in councils over over the country. Um, so I do think you know that we you know there is a commitment certainly and I've seen in Labour of giving you know um, women a voice in the party but I think you know widespread in politics I think there's a huge amount of barriers for women entering politics when you mm-hmm. think of things like childcare um, you know when you think of class structure as well unequal um, pay yes in, absolutely um, and parity of pay and, and you know so those are, are kind of issues that affect women across broad spectrums not just in politics then but it's in just bu- general prejudice as well and, yeah, yeah absolutely so um, I suppose you know uh, as a young woman I would have seen kind of these these kind of uh, you know issues and um, I would have been affected by you know um, either being talked down to at, at senior meetings Manspeak, and stuff. is that what they call it yeah now? mansplaining yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that but um, you know I find that my opinions and, and you know my voice is very much appreciated um, in Labour Youth and, and a labor uh, labor in the labor party um so i i think that you know that we can do more and all the parties can be doing more to promote women but we need to have those voices you know i need to be able to see leaders um and people in positions that are you know above me um getting elected and you know their voices being heard and, and that kind of inspires you know the the future generations so. that's what uh, i want i like to add uh, the, the issue would be something such having quotas is just including everybody and giving everybody equal say and equal pay and then once you have the the pool of uh, of uh, every uh, person from a lot of ba- or, or every background then you'll be able to uh, attract the, the, the best the most in- interesting people and then instead of having quotas, we have to have 50-50 women, 50 men, or uh, 30% transgender or uh, LGBT, or uh, you attract all of these people, mm-hmm. and then from them you, you, you choose which one the best, and then they uh, the quota will settle them themselves. So you have uh, people from all or all backgrounds participating mm-hmm. instead of trying to have okay now we need to have so many men, so many women, so many transgender, so many LGBT. You, I don't kind of agree with this uh, mindset. It's just kind of you attract people from all over, all backgrounds, and then you choose, you you let uh, their star sign, you know, uh, from all these communities, and then you have a naturally more uh, balanced uh, uh, participation in into these uh, institutions. Connor, not enough women in Finnegal. Well, no yeah, leaders. Yeah, that's true, and that's a failure that we have to accept, and that we haven't done enough on that issue. I think we have some fantastic women in Finnegal who are incredibly strong and future potential leadership material, definitely. Like who? Well, you have Helen McEntee there, who's been playing a stellar job mm-hmm. in uh, 
in the Brexit negotiations, you've Kate O'Connell, who mm -hmm. was fantastic during their PLA referendum, and you've so see the law, and you've of course Marine McGuinness doing her thing over in yeah, Brussels. Yeah, but as she's well. kind of she's has she missed the boat, Marie McGuinness? I, I don't yeah. think so. I think Marie has really, really achieved so much over in Europe, mm -hmm. and that resonates here. And the fact that that does resonate here, which a lot a lot of times it doesn't really work out for a lot of people over in Brussels, they don't get that exposure or that sort mm -hmm. of appreciation for their work back. She's probably more popular in the UK than she is in Ireland. Maria? Yeah. Well, she's probably, probably more well-known, isn't she? I'd say she's very well-known here as well. I think yeah. when you see... I'm being slightly someone, sarcastic. Someone, there, it's someone in Irish yeah. interest, in Irish interest, and I think Brexit probably has highlighted that as well, like mm. Phil Hogan, you know, getting the trade commissioner for, for a long time, people say Phil who, but now people are very, very well aware of Irish yeah. people in those high-profile positions in Brussels. In terms of uh, women in politics, yeah, it, it, it is a... It is a failure of us as a society, and it's illustrative of the patriarchal society that we all sort of emerge from as well. And the fact that we didn't have women in any female leadership until Mary Robinson and then ultimately Mary McAleese, and the fact we still haven't had a female Taoiseach. And two, is it two female Taoiseachs in the history of the state yeah, as well, which is, so, yeah. is, is, is yeah. terrible. And I think it's something that we could point the finger at every party in Ireland, at every youth organisation in Ireland, and it's indicative of a wider societal problem. Yeah. So I, I think there is a bit of bipartisanship there that we have to accept that, and I think to, to tackle that, there needs to be bipartisanship and not to score political points and saying, you had so many women at a meeting. Well, it's indicative of a societal issue as well. And Young Fine Gael has an issue with it, and many other youth wing parties have an issue with it as well, and it's something that we need to sort out, and we have to be willing to sort out as well. So should the youth, should the youth elements be starting out there? Should you be starting there? I mean, should, is, is there leaders, is there young leaders coming through on any of your groups that you can say, oh, there's a leader there now and it's a female? Yeah, I think there's some very, very... Well, fin, fin, young Fine Gael certainly could do with it. We could do and that, this is the thing, I, I mean, think, judging by your recent Twitter... Twitter, Twitter yeah, oh, I, I, I remember that, and that, that's, I mean, that's rightly so, that we, we deserve to be roasted for that, because... Just for the, just for the balance on our listeners, there's been some implications that you've had a gender imbalance there, and that's been more or less been implicated by other political parties. But that, to give yeah, you the benefit of that, I, I, I think we, we would accept there is a gender imbalance there. But I think it's it's slightly rich of other political parties. To, of course, to and that's why I'm, I'm saying this. It's been a political punch. It, it, you know, it's a political punch for us, and we will take that punch. And rightly so, we do not have enough women involved in our organisation. How and do you get them? How do we? Get, I think we we engage in those practices that we were talking about there in that. Is it a recruitment problem? It's a recruit. I think it's an issue wide for young women don't feel as if their voices will be heard in those organisations. Like when you walk into a group of men, it is very, very intimidating for a young woman to get herself forward. So the problem is almost, it's a bit of a catch-22. You don't have enough young women there already and that in turn puts off young women from joining. And I think that's something that we have to address as well. I think it's very interesting that you um, name-checked Mary Robinson there. Certainly when I was growing up in the 90s and, and early noughties in, in Ireland, Mary Robinson would have been, you know, a very dominant figure in Irish politics. Obviously, you know, she was, um, you know, a great Labour woman. Um, and <laughs> I've been reading her book this week. She has a new book, which is about um, climate change coming from a feminist mm -hmm. angle. So I'm trying to kind of educate myself better on, on the climate change um, agenda. And she was, I, I was speaking about it from a, from her work in the United Nations and she would have been a, a huge kind of figure for me and certainly would have been inspirational for me growing up and and I think we need to see more of uh, I suppose those women um, mm -hmm. in, in those positions and we have great women who've come from this But are country. women more attracted to left-wing politics do you think? In Ireland, um, I, I think that uh, left-wing politics, and certainly, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I would have been attracted, like fighting for the right, 
rights and yes. all that kind of thing. One of the reasons I would have been attracted um, to to Labour Youth would have been, um, you know, through uh, the Repeal the Eighth campaign. Mm. Certainly, you know, when you look at the leadership um, that was taken on that campaign, and that was such a, an important issue and time for women in Ireland, and mm. that referendum, particularly, I was, you know very much you know feel I was at, at the coalface certainly in Cork and and from the the youth standpoint and and that was a very tough election uh, a very tough referendum campaign for us all and you know I would have felt you know solidarity with um, a lot of people from other parties mm-hmm. as well that were on the spectrum um in terms of I suppose pushing that agenda and getting you know I suppose um you know reproductive rights in this country which was a huge moment for us mm. um in in our history but you know those issues you know we still um you know have to see it being implemented in the north which is uh, the next the next kind of issue and um, you know there there are a lot of you know barriers still that we have to kind of bring down and you know I suppose left-wing parties are kind of pushing that agenda and would mm. have always been um, you know uh, have equality and uh, feminism you know as central core um, issues that's a kind of a thing from the 90s the anti-catholic well anti-church sort of thing women are no longer yeah. stuck at the the dinner table, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a, I think there's, there's a been big a transformation yeah. um, in this country um, over particularly the last 20 years. And when you look at the falling away of, uh, I suppose, um, you know, the church and and those old kind of establishment things that you know were anti-women, you oh know, yeah. in but, ma- but Sinn Fein, Sinn Fein have stole a bit of that as well. I mean, you've had very strong women in Sinn Fein as well too. I mean, how so? What, like, there's in there's, terms of having there's two le- yes, there's two leaders at the women. moment yeah. in, in in Mary Lou and, and Michelle O'Neill. Um, but I I do think that Sinn Fein has. Uh, a problem themselves, you know, with... Well, they've had a know. few women in Europe as well, too. You know, in, in their MEPs have been women yeah. as well. So they do have a good, a lot of strong women candidates as well. So I think Sinn Féin have done well in the recruitment process in terms of taking women on board as well. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, Sinn Féin would have taken a knock in, in the recent election. They certainly did, but I think that was down yeah. to the fact that they probably lost a lot of their hardline campaigners who were willing to knock on the door rather than, you know, they, they trusted their, their online campaign and they probably failed miserably rather than... They, they, they would have had a lot of lads who would have maybe got out there and banged on the doors and probably recruited yeah. people at the doors. A lot of them have fallen by the wayside over the last five years yeah. and, and they, they, they lost out on that. I, I think, think the leadership is very much, um, you know, there, there's, you know, a lot of people in charge in that party, or it seems, you know, that make the decisions that aren't necessarily the leader. The leader is kind of, you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> the tail wag. That's the a t- completely different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I, would, I would think that, you know, uh, they have a lot way to go in they certainly they're in recovery period there's no doubt about that yeah call mm. um i'd like to come in on that because i've uh just been listening to the two other guys you know just to explain how they felt about you know gender equality and stuff and i think anna mentioned that you know she was the one who said you cannot be what you cannot see yet we don't see 50 50 in either of these parties and volt europa all our uh european lists for candidates in uh in Germany, in Belgium, in Netherlands, we're all 50-50 uh, male, female. So, and then, I, and I accept that Connor says, you know, he's gonna take the punch on that one, I think was figuratively, figuratively what he said. And maybe they do struggle to attract women into their, poli- into their parties because of the policies that they have or the cultures that they have in those parties. But I think if you have, as I say, that structure of male, female, 50-50 men, women in all positions on the board, um, or on your, in your uh, election lists, um, I think that is a good way to start. Uh, in, in a slight comeback, to that, just I think especially when you're a very new party, I think it's a great thing that's been introduced. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot easier to do that as a very new and indeed smaller party as well. When mm-hmm. you have an entrenched existing parliamentary party, you can't just sit and have your TDs. And also, Carl, to be fair now, I'm going to put you up on something. 
you know, your party is, you know, it, it does seem to have a very kind of white academic middle class sort of pulling as well. I mean, you don't see a lot of different, um, you know, elements from different parts of Europe. I mean, there's, I mean, how many people, for example, how many candidates were black African-American, Africans, for example? Um, candidates? Yeah. I, I don't have those figures. That's what I'm saying. I, I so, you know, you, you, you know, when the party starts off, it attracts a certain element of people. So there are, you know, every party has its limitations. Mm. Well, um, we struggle with that in a big way yeah. because... Being a pan-European party, the politics is across the whole of Europe. Well, your politics so are very liberal. Um, you know, they would be so they, they would attract a lot of academics. You know, we I I seen the we we followed closely, for example, the people who you, who were representing you in the European elections. I mean, they were they were they were you know they were people coming from an academic background. They were postgraduates, for example. You know, there wasn't people, for example, who were coming from say a, lo a social democratic left, for example, um, or you know. So you know, they, they, I would just they, we do have a, lot, a number of members who are from. Yeah, the but they weren't they weren't unemployed. Left. They weren't unemployed. The people who were you know who were say in their mid fifties, for example, you know, or they weren't um, somebody who was a, a recent migrant for example um, now over the years Labour and say parties all across Europe like Labour or parties all across Europe like Fine Gael would have mm. had um, candidates like that so I suppose every party has its problems mm. you would agree so yeah we're a very young party as I, I say understand, and, and yeah. a lot of people are coming into the party from college especially in, in, in Europe um, and but yeah it is something that we struggle with we, sh we try to balance that because there's the north-south divide obviously in Europe there's also the east-west divide mm. so we struggle to uh, attract voters and members in eastern and central European countries as compared to western Europe so what is what problems are you having in so what what successes and what problems are you having here in Ireland for example in terms of recruitment we're uh, so far I think people are very supportive of our uh, overall idea but I think, and our overall movement in general. But Have I think you managed to register as a party here in Ireland? No. What haven't. do you need to do? So just for example, I mean, I probably know, most people here know, but say for our listeners, what exactly do you need to do to register as a party here in Ireland? Uh, actually, do you want to register as a party? Yeah, here? no, we do okay, want to so register what's as a exactly, party. Just for the benefit of the listeners, what exactly do you need uh, to do? Well, you need to have 300 registered members that mm -hmm. you give, and then you have uh, your logo and your registered address, um, your party documentation, and your, which would be your statutes. Uh, stuff like that of that nature and how you conduct yourself your treasurer your mm -hmm. uh, your president and you give all this information to the registrar and he goes through and validates uh, whether everything is in order and if so he decides whether you can become a party or not are you anywhere near that goal um i'm not going to push you on numbers because that would be a little bit unfair uh, we are close to um we're close to it but we're our goal is to be registered by january 2020 that's okay. our why timeline. is that why, what's that number what's that what's important about that date because we, we do have a number of signatures. We, we have enough signatures at the moment, but we, we're not sure how many of those signatures are valid. So we're trying to continue to grow the party, continue to uh, expand our member base so that we can have enough uh, that we are sure will be uh, valid, deemed valid by the registrar. So once, you're, once you've got that golden number, is it going to be general elections, local elections, European elections? All, what? all elections. So the thing about Europe for us is that... Uh, it's at all levels. It should be local level, national level, and European level. So, you know, naturally, we think people who live in the local area should decide on local issues, okay. and national area decide on national issues. But European level, we have an alignment towards what we want okay. to see. Europe so let's level. let's stick with that, right? So we're going to move on to another question, which I know you're going to be keen to talk about. So we're going to go on about the concept of European integration, mm -hmm. right? So I'm actually going to start with you, Anna, because mm -hmm. um, SD S and D. Um, they did very well in Europe this yes. year. And um, 
they went in on a policy of kind of mixed messages from some of their parties that we were following mm -hmm. quite closely across Europe. Yeah. And some parties were in favour of European integration, some parties were in favour of kind of halting that, some parties were in favour of keeping the status quo. So what what is your um, personal opinion on it? Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you think about further integration? Do you think there should be more part, some more new nations joining? Do you think it should be as it is? Or Yeah, um, I mean, I would be pro-integration. Um, um, mm -hmm. I suppose with um, S&D, obviously, that is, you know, the, the I suppose, wider European, um, you know, representative voice yeah. in there and you know it would take from a lot of strands um you know different uh, i suppose different voices and 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 i i do think that um i suppose you know the people on the ground in in local parties and you know in domestic politics are the people who know keen to know, hear what you're hearing on the you know, yeah yeah and and you know and I suppose, you know, we are represented by S&D, but I suppose the Labour Party then, you know, in Ireland, um, I suppose would be that voice there and we, yeah. we would know best and be able to lead from from an Irish perspective um, in Europe uh, on, you know, what are, are kind of the issues that are important. Um, I feel that, um, you know, we, I, I think it's great to see more integration and I think more needs to be done in terms of bringing Europe closer together. I think, you know, certainly one thing I've kind of taken from the whole Brexit mess is, is there is that united front and there does seem to be you know countries backing Ireland you know hearing other leaders from other countries saying we stand with Ireland you know I think that has been a huge thing and, and mm -hmm. shown kind of that we can take our place um, both uh, on a European level and in the world and that we aren't you know sort of this this new nation in the last hundred years that you know is coming out of the UK shadow that we we are kind of a, a strong confident nation on a global um, a global um, stage and I think that uh, that kind of solidarity and it has been kind of good to see that from around Europe and uh, I think that Ireland has has to, I suppose, make more um, connections and and make more, I suppose, agreements with other EU, European nations. You know, when when the UK does leave the now, the EU. what about so we talk about other countries joining the EU, but what about further integration in terms of giving up a certain degree of, you know, <laughs> of uh, independence? Um, I, I think that. Um, we are very, very, we very yes yeah. um I, we are very proud nation in ireland and i think that you know um countries uh, i don't see any sort of you know major level um disintegration of sovereignty or uh, anytime soon um i suppose there are obviously a lot of um fears on i suppose the the way that europe is going and the bureaucracy that i think sometimes can turn a lot of people off and i think uh, you know i would be pro europe but i i think that there needs to be a lot of reform in terms of at that senior level um you know when you look at the commissioner the secretariat the was a lot of you know deals done and, and the people who were selected for those roles um you know was that the most transparent um process you know i think a lot of people would maybe disagree so i, I think a, a lot needs to be done in, in terms of um making that clearer and and sort of you know negating that that level of bureaucracy that can be seen as a barrier or can put a lot of people off european politics and uh, and so I suppose like that would be something that that I would kind of like to see on your and within the SND group would there be um, a number of say people or individuals or organisations that would be pro federalist um, in that you would have come across at your various organisation um, meetings well I'm I'm going to um, an event uh, next week in Copenhagen which is um, I'm meeting young European socialists and I suppose you know hopefully we'll have those conversations you know and I need to kind of find out more about um, those kind of uh, opinions and and see. See, I suppose what the the kind of um, what the uh, outlook is, but uh, you know there are obviously people you know um, who will be pro federalist. Uh, I don't think that um, I don't see Ireland or I don't see um, the the kind of Irish leadership um, moving towards you know that. But I, I think you know the we do need to bring down barriers and borders, and we do need to I suppose have greater integration. But also, it's important to maintain our sovereignty and to maintain sort of you know our proud Irish tradition. And so overall, you become in favour of it. 
development of the status quo, I, but an improvement on the status quo. I, I, ref- I d- definitely, I've been in favour of reform of um, a lot of the uh, of a lot of the European institutions, and and um, yes, but I I would um, I would be very uh, you know in favour of Ireland, I suppose, being kind of a strong part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ireland also, you know, having that you know that level of sovereignty and. Um, I suppose for for us, I suppose to to have that kind of you know decision making in in Dublin and with our leaders too. Carl, it's, it's a big element within Vault for federalism. I mean, it's it's it's, yeah. it's, it's the, basically the big pillar of what you guys stand mm, for. I wouldn't call it no. Ooh, we yeah, have, we have pillars, but we I wouldn't call it one of our pillars. Oh. There's de- like we're as I mentioned before, I don't want to keep harping back to scientific party, but that's what we consider ourselves. So we're people of all different ideas, all different views, people who would have. You might label them to be left wing or right wing, but they just come together to 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 find consensus and, and think about things strategically, what's better for everyone, as I say. But yeah, there there is a large number of people probably in the party who would be federalists. There is a considerably large amount of people <laughs> in the party who consider themselves federalists. Yeah, um, there are. Yeah, and I think ninety percent probably. Well, I don't know. I don't know exactly <laughs> how many people, but the, yeah, there is definitely a Euro federalist element to mm-hmm. vault. I go between them. I sometimes I'm with the kind of more not with the Federalists than I am with. Is the that Federalists. the Irish person in you? Mm, I don't know. I think I think it's. I sometimes think you know the word pride was mentioned there um, by Anna to be proud of being Irish. I'm not sh- like that's something that I struggle to comprehend to a degree. Like I don't understand how being born on a territory on the face of the earth gives you pride. Oh, that's Connor. That. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think an interesting part of territory. Um, I think you know everybody to cannot choose where they're born, and you can only be proud of the actions that you take as mm-hmm. a person. That would be my view, and I think Ireland is. But surely there's realistic. a slight contradiction there because I always find you know the way you hear people saying that nationalism is a bad thing, and then you have these same people you know going on about European integration and European um, unionism. And they talk about you know the Federalist Union of Europe, and they fly the European Union flag. Surely that's a larger form of nationalism. Mm, for me, no. I, <clears throat> no, I think Europe is made up of lots of different uh, nationalities and cultures. And uh, look, if we look at Germany, which is a federal state, mm. there's they broad, certainly get pride in their German oh, flag when they mm, play football. <laughs> they, that's not true at all. <laughs> they actually don't sing their national anthem. A lot of people don't su- I know support the German Germans football who team. Sing their anthem. I know plenty of Germans who don't sing the national anthem and mm. do not identify with the German soccer team at all mm, well, for that okay. very reason. And in Bavaria, they're extremely like they call some, some people outside Bavaria Prussians. So I, I don't think that's necessarily true. On the other hand, uh, I think Anglo-Saxon culture as in Ireland, UK, United States, Australia, seem to be, have this a, a element of superiority attached to them, I think. They think that they are... Colonial past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what it is. They, they can say, like, even if you look at Ireland, and I know Ireland thinks it's immune to this, but I'm not so sure if it is because you go into stores. I, I remember somebody recently telling me this, that they couldn't believe that when you go into Aldi or Lidl, everything says made in Ireland, made in Ireland, produced in Ireland, on it three times. There's Irish flags on almost every single item of groceries in there. It's it's bizarre when you actually think about it. And I think there's definitely an undertone of Irish people thinking they're superior to, I don't know, in terms of their government or their in their country, now that we have a strong economy, um, giving out about bureaucracy in Europe and even saying, you know, things are so much cheaper over there, which in, in, is largely true in, in some of the countries, but not everywhere in Europe. Like the most... Uh, 
the wealthiest and expensive parts of Europe are not in Ireland or the UK. They're, they're in southern Germany and, and around Switzerland and Italy. But yeah, just to get back to the Federalist point, yeah, we're definitely uh, in favour of more integration in, in every way. We want a complete overhaul of the European Union. So as I would agree with you, it did sound like Anna was in favour of, you know, more of the same, but like a bit, a bit better. Um, but we consider ourselves to be... I, I wouldn't say I'm pro-federalist at all. No, I'm, not pro-federalist. I mean, I'm, I'm pro-EU reform, mm. certainly. Yeah, no, so, so are we, but we want a complete overhaul for uh, in, in many different areas. Um, I hope we're going to get to some of them. Uh, one of the areas, like, for example, is police. Like, right now, criminals are able to commit crimes in every different state in the EU, cross the border, and everything's done. That came to, to light in the Bataclan attacks. It come, I'm sure it's got, it comes to light more than Ireland, maybe, with... Uh, uh, certain person and you know the pro- problems that were smuggling that that was happening up there and maybe the lack of co- cooperation between uh, the PSNI and the Gardaí and I think if we have a federal police so you're looking for a kind of Euro FBI yeah basically okay. and I think that would cut out a lot I of think most people would probably yeah, be in favour of that idea yeah I think one of the things that I yeah. think the, there like is Interpol before. yeah there is Interpol well Interpol is, a, is more of an international organisation Euro, Europol yeah, I think, yeah, Europol, yeah. yeah. but they're, they're not boots on ground that's no. an administration yeah. thing yeah. Yeah. I, I think just to pick up a point there about like sort of pride in, in being Irish and I, I think hmm. it, it's a human nature to have an identity and that's what we strive to attach ourselves to and you know, be it a European identity or sorry, or a national identity, it's something that can be very visceral to people, and they cling to it, and they cling to it at times when things aren't going well for them. And mm. it's 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 quite illustrative of in Northern Ireland, for example, in that when the troubles were raging, people retreated further and further into this mm. identity. The economy was in the tank. They had nowhere else to go, but this is who I am. This is mm. what protects me. And it's similar to what we seen in Britain after the financial crash. There were places left behind. So. I, I would agree mostly with what we're saying about European integration. I wouldn't go as far as saying that federalism is what I, I would strongly advocate, but I believe further integration is key, but we have to be very, very careful not to mess with identity because that's something... And sovereignty as well. And sovereignty as well because that's something... I think that's linked with, um, I suppose, you know, the rise of the far right as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see kind of groups in Ireland, like there is, you know, Identity Ireland or, you know, Direct Democracy Ireland and and a lot of these groups, even though they don't have electoral success, there is the spectre of that they they hang over, I suppose, you know, our process. And um, I suppose, you know, what we maybe should take from that, you know, um, is that there is a lot of fear out there and fear that, you know, people um, don't feel like, you know, they, they have a place either in this country or they're, or they're feeling, um, you know, that they're, you know, feeling of displacement as well. And I, so I suppose, you know, we have to look at that and, and have to look at, you know, what is, you know, um, our identity in Ireland and what, um, I suppose, is our place in Europe and, and you know, uh, in order to, I suppose, the, you know, fight the rise of, of far-right populism, we, we need to well, we, we can have touch those on, conversations. We can, we can touch on the far-right far right in, in a few moments. Chris? Uh, one thing I'd like to add is when people uh, see all the negative or bad things about the EU, EU administration, what I always remind them is, is uh, okay, there is corruption and lobbyism in the EU Parliament and Commission, but so is there... And so is in the national parliaments, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, so we abolish those as well. So we abolish uh, national governments because they are corrupt in, in, in large, large extent. Now, uh, we work f- to, to, to solve these problems, hopefully. Mm. Yeah. 
uh, and that's that's why I stand for. You know, don't uh, bash the EU for all the bad ones. See what we can, uh, how we can reform it, and see we can we, we can better it. Because if we want to abolish EU because it's it's uh, bureaucratic, then so we should abolish national governments because they're also very bureaucratic. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Carl, the other issues that you wanted to raise about. Um you said there was about police other issues. What other issues had you got in mind? You were something to discuss some more there. Yeah, just security of the European Union. Mm-hmm. I think uh, like that goes on to a broader sense in, in a couple of different points, I guess. One is uh, like a federal police service to, to mm-hmm. like I think, you know, the Kinahans in Ireland are uh, a drug cartel that like have a pan-European drug empire, mm-hmm. um, largely based out of Spain, I understand. Um, and like, how are the Guardi in a, like a small country such as Ireland able to tackle a pan-European drug guard cartel without European support? I think it's it's uh, it's you know an issue that I don't know maybe doesn't register on the uh, much on the uh, political horizon of maybe Labour or Fine Gael. But when I read the newspapers and see you know people being shot dead every other week in, in the drug feuds, I think that's something that you know maybe we should get some help with. I think it registers with a lot of people. But I think it's still a national problem, though. Yeah. Um, it's, it's countries. Yeah. It's na- like in in that sense, it's you know the Irish, you know the Gardaí and Gardaí kind of working with the Spanish police force mm. um, in terms of tackling that. And you know there have mm. been kind of raids and busts and and, no, and, and and I suppose more cooperation in terms of when it is to do with some stuff like um you know international crime, European crime, um that there is I suppose you know that cooperation between states, mm. um in, in that information. It does exist. I think it has to be though a case of one state working with the other mm. it's always been a traditional way the other see what really scares a lot of people i think about when you talk about this kind of um this federalist idea is that and we bring it up again and again and it was a big issue here in ireland it's about the european militarization <laughs> now it's a big pillar in in volts um mm-hmm. agenda so i'm going to ask you about that first mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are in favor of obviously having yeah. one standing alone European army. Now, there are different versions of this. There are some federal organizations who feel that there should be just a kind of um, a cross connection of it. There should be a sharing of um, materials, there should be sharing of um, uh, information, whatever. But you guys believe in a one badge, one army. Yeah, so, that's what we believe, yeah. Okay, so give me a little bit more info on that and then I'd like the guys to give their opinions on that as well. Well, we believe that like historically, um, well, in the past, since World War II, Europe has fully relied on the United States for its military and defensive protection, basically. Ireland is extremely privileged in terms of its geography. To the west, there is a massive Atlantic Ocean. The, the countries that are across that are Canada, the United States, uh, Northwest is Iceland, Scandinavia, and then we have the UK and France, like, on the other sides. I think they are all democracy-loving nations. They're all nations that are very accommodative towards Ireland. And their militaries uh, have ne- would never threaten to uh, attack Ireland. So it's very easy for Ireland to pr- maintain a neutral uh, stance. Whereas other countries in Europe, this isn't the case. You look at play, uh, countries such as the Baltic states, which are you know uh, cyber attacks from Russia. Um, you look at Greece, even with you know uh, Turkish military. Um, it, like in operations and stuff happening in in the Black Sea and even uh, in Romania and places in, or Ukraine, which is you know wants to join the EU with the, the military actions happening in the Azov Sea. So I think in order to defend democracy, in order to stand up for the values that we believe in, you can't just go soft and say, oh, America will do it because America won't do it anymore. Like we see that with Trump, he's he's backing away, and I actually 
really regret the way that America is is going. And I think probably a lot of people would. And I don't think they are a reliable partner. They they actively are the current administration is actively trying to disband the EU. They're pro Brexit. They've they're ambassador they're to not London. last forever though. The, yeah, the administration won't. But I think that having our whole defense of our own institutions and democracy being based in the hands of America, I think, is just farcical. I think Ireland has to take, you know, stand up for its own voice through the European Union or through uh, an, a, an organization like the European Union to stand up for its own defense and not just, ex- like, for example, there was m- a Russian MiGs that entered into Irish airspace. Um, I think it was in 2016 or or after 2016. And yeah, I'm sure the Irish airport don't have any jets. But so, we've never traditionally had any kind of jets. So what do we have to do? We have to ring up the British army and ask the British army to send jets. That's what we do. That, that's what that's our military. So like this idea of sovereignty and being but proud of our same, own sovereignty. But we don't have any sovereignty, basically, to a degree. But isn't that the same as having a kind of an, an arrangement, say, with a larger organisation? Yeah, well, what, but what we can influence, we can't influence the British British Army in the same extent that we have can through electing officials and representatives through the European Union. Like I, I can't, well, not, not I can't elect anyone in British politics to, to defend me. Like we have to literally, um, I don't know, se- sell ourselves to them and say, oh, please, please get down on your hands and knees, help us. The Russians are in our airspace. Whereas if we had our own military in the EU. Okay, so we, we, we have the issue in Ireland, right? No, our soldiers aren't paid forever. Mm-hmm. Connor. Well, yeah, the defence forces. Terrible army. No, no army. No soldiers. No police. Oh, sorry, no air force. No nothing. Uh, Finnegan man, there. You're responsible <laughs> for all this. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't think anybody in in mainstream political politics would argue against defence cooperation in the European. It is a very emotive issue. It's understandably. Well, Connor's talking about you now the abolishment of the Euro, of an Irish army and having a huge. Well, see, this is European the thing, and this is this is where I think there's. I, a, the, I never said abolishment of the Irish army. Uh, but I, I think there there is a bit of a mistake that 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 type of policy there will spook people and will give fuel to populists, fuel to people on the, the extremes of both sides of the political divide to say, look what they're doing. They're taking our army away. Like it, visual things. So, like, Colin, 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 so what I are you saying? Are you talking army. about an Irish division within a European army? Yes. So, so that's still a European army. Still, that's still a chain of command. That's still a chain. I think, I think defence cooperation is the best way to go so, but if you have an overarching European so army So what exactly do you mean then? So you maintain your own armies and then a portion of that is committed to the European army But is that not what we already do? In a way, yeah, I suppose in a it way is to a degree yeah actually it is but I don't, it's not actually operational in the sense that a, a European uh, like we have an external action force currently right now and mm-hmm. the Irish army do go on missions with the external action force. So how would the Irish army benefit from that then? I think I think one thing that you know nobody's spoken about yet mm. um, which is very important and certainly was a question that I heard um, asked um, of MEPs or prospective MEP oh. candidates during the um, EU elections is um, neutrality mm-hmm. and Irish neutrality well, I about and, and I think yeah, we yeah. have to, yeah. to talk about how um, very closely that is held by a lot of Irish people and, and as a very important mm. um, foreign policy um, stance, you know, this it's island has been slowly chipped away. Anna. This this island um, has seen a huge amount of um, you know war and um, of violence and bloodshed, mm. and we do not want to go back to the days, certainly um, you know, in the north of our country, um, of uh, you know of the troubles, and you know certainly around the foundation of the state. And one of the I suppose you know key pillars that a lot of candidates had, you know, if I can't name one candidate, then I I would have seen a lot of debates and would have been present in a lot of debates. I can't remember one candidate that said that they were in favour. None of them were. There was 
none of them were. Even a, the, even a lot article. of the very yeah, yeah. Uh, far right, right yeah. um, candidates weren't. So I feel that neutrality and about um, and that push for militarization is not going to find a lot of favour here. I also feel like there needs to be more transparency on the issue of what is being done in terms of militarization in Europe. Um, like I listened to your previous podcast um, with. Claire Daly MEP where she was saying that huge amounts of money of the EU budget yeah. are Very being revealing. squared away Very and revealing. that message is not going back to Ireland so when we have all of our candidates you know saying publicly here um, you know that they're you know against it but uh, you know is the message coming back to Ireland that that maybe the train is already you know um, left the station and that the you know issues are being put in motion or, or the militarization has been putting motion um, at a senior level um, I think that our defense forces do uh, a fantastic job in defending our country I also feel that w you know we have many different concerns to other nations in Europe I think our when neutrality is very different yes. to the neutrality say yeah. of Switzerland but, or Sweden but when you look at you know this week obviously you know there there was a, an attack on the headquarters in Paris I've been in the metro in Paris when there was a bomb scare and had to evacuate and, and get on a bus to, to get to Charles de Gaulle Airport. Um, you know, uh, these security concerns that there are on the continent of France where there has been a huge amount of terrorist attacks is very different from the security concerns that may be in Ireland um, and or maybe in other states in, the, in Europe. So, so basically, it's not our problem. So it's not our problem, so we don't need to do anything It's not that it. it's not our problem. It, you know, security is something that, of course, we need to look at. But I think, you know, um, the needs of certain countries are different from others. And I think having one kind of set standard, um, you know, is, it, you know, that is a very dangerous, I think. But you know, do you not think that we need to defend democracy and the values that we hold in Europe? Because there's Russia, there's Trump, there's China. There's Turkey now moving away as well. Yes, there's Iran, I, I suppose a lot of that Saudi is... There's Saudi Arabia. These I, are I, I think the danger, though, of the European army is that... What what it does is that, uh, as Ken was illustrating there, we have a very, very almost va love of our neutrality here in Ireland. All political parties agree that to touch that, to meddle with that, would be very, very damaging for the European project in that it would could create a lot of collateral damage for a lot of people in that regard. So I think it, you have to sell it to people to people in that this is not this unified army with someone in Brussels who can tell Irish troops to go and invade or go abroad anywhere. Mm. It has to be defence cooperation with a veto, and I think that's the only palatable way you can do it for I the electorate. I think that's that's the problem. When, uh, when we talk about uh, army, do we talk about defence or we mm -hmm. we talk about uh, aggression? Aggression. aggression. Yeah. So aggression, nobody wants. I mean, I I'm pro EU army, but I not for uh, for like intervention in, 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 yeah. in yeah. NATO exactly, type, yeah. type of thing. It's solely for defense. Like, because in my opinion, like I'm coming from Greece, we are the borders of Europe. Mm -hmm. We need support of the rest of Europe for in many things when it comes to security and, mm -hmm. uh, and protection. But I don't uh, believe that um, we should use a boogeyman or Russia is going to attack us or Turkey is going to attack us or Iran is going to attack us. We, uh, I believe that if we if we use uh, the trade and uh, trade agreements and uh, foreign policy, we can mm -hmm. we don't have have any 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 a threat from this well, country. But like it it's has just, to come back to hard and soft power. Yeah. Like right now, nobody like for example example uh, Srebrenica in the Balkan the Bosnian War, eight thousand people massacred, mm. just massacred. And what did Europe do? What did Ireland do? Well, I don't, I don't think Ireland could have really exactly it couldn't do anything it, Man, it didn't couldn't yeah. save many, anyone many of our servicemen and, uh, service and women um, served in the uh, in the Balkans or yeah. were part of the um, 
were part of the United Nations peacekeeping forces that went Which in. Which allowed went in, people to get that went in. Yes, but so I think all, that was a decision made on the day by very badly trained soldiers. And I think mm. a lot of discussion has gone into that particular incident. Mm. And the Dutch soldiers on the day were probably the worst type of soldiers but to have I, on I the can day. Can I just get back to I the point? Just to clarify that issue, I think a lot of there's been a lot of there's been a lot of discussion. There's been a lot of investigations on that particular incident. Mm. Um, I, think I, think ha- I think you've had. I think if you just for an example, I think if you had had British soldiers on that day, I think that situation would have been handled differently. Mm. They were not professional or European soldiers. soldiers that were had a mandate that well, had, had a mandate European to be soldiers. able to do something. No, they and had European soldiers. They had Dutch no, they, soldiers. Yeah, they had no. They had UN soldiers no, on a Dutch peacekeakeeping mission. You, you but they were Dutch soldiers. Yeah, but they were they were yeah. on the mandate of the UN. I don't think it was the fact that they were UN soldiers. I think the I fact think was, it was I think it was the fact that they were Dutch soldiers who probably weren't they probably weren't the used country. to the actual theatre of yes. war. That's good. I think the countries part of the conflict were not in the were not in the EU. A lot of them have are now integrated in the EU and would have come in in the enlargement in two thousand four. So I think we. Won't see, um, you know, uh, any kind of, you know. Um, Can I just get back to the point well, I initially wanted well, to make about that in terms of hard and soft power? To be honest, you, you raised this issue, the issue on Severnitsa, and I'm trying to say to you that, as Anna said, if you had probably even if you had Irish soldiers who were veterans of the of the Lebanon campaign, probably would have handled that situation differently because they were veterans of an actual mm, terrible I agree, campaign. I agree with that. The Dutch soldiers in that situation were not veterans of any campaign, but ha- so they probably handled the situation poorly. And you mm, have to look at the, the work that was done by peacekeeping forces by Irish men and women. That, that who, is not my point. Who, who went in um, into those countries you know after that war and did a lot of good work that do a lot of good work around um, around the world when you look at Congo Golan Heights um, there uh, you know I think we should be Absolutely. proud of of the the peacekeeping um, efforts and we're not that are be able being to done magnify by our that with the European do we not have a clause so, in the treaty that says if a, if a state is invaded by a foreign power European powers have to come to their aid I'm not quite sure Conor I think, I th- but I is think, that I think, with uh, that element already that we have yeah. that, that but so guys, are you, can I just get back you, to the point that I initially wanted to make there basically what I was saying is a, there's a difference between hard and soft power the America has this Russia has this what that is is effectively that if somebody does something in a, in a region that's nearby they know that there's going to be repercussions from that army at the moment like things happen in the Bosnian war that would not have happened if the generals had to think hang on the whole of Europe is watching me if I do something here they're going to move straight in or that could the same could be to give stability to Syria like we have the migrants. That's, like that's the essence. I mean, it's if we if we have just a pact that we said, if you touch any of our, any of us, then you. Uh, it's called it's, hard it's, power. It's, yeah. Ireland has but they already no know that. Hard power. They already know no that soft if, power. if they roll in across European Union borders. Yeah. All the European No, but not in Syria. Not in Syria. Yes, or in Syria's Turkey, not in European Or in you, Ukraine. You're talking, in you're Ukraine. talking about power. What I'm hearing is, um, you know, is to move away from the stance of neutrality, is, you know, um, is sort of, you know, arming, uh, I suppose, you know, Irish forces to. You well, you're know. arming the European Union as well. I think what you're yeah. doing is you're, you're defining the European Union then yeah. as a state. And I think the problem is where well, that's you, what federalism yes, ultimately but, means. Mm-hmm. You see, this is the thing. Yes, and this is what I'm trying to say. We haven't quite reached that point in the European Union. We are neither a economic bloc nor are we a state. And mm, I think if you are going to have a European Union army, you need to define that first. Yeah, I agree. And I think the talk of having an army before you have a state is, is, yeah, is, is I, a move. I never said to have the army straight away. I never. I wasn't in favour of you know rolling this. Would you guys around. agree? Would you guys agree then if if you had a compromise situation where Ireland could have an opt out where they could probably do maybe border defence or they could do something like a peace corps or they could do something like um, say Coast Guard. Connor. It's it's one of those things we would have to look at the detail of the proposal and mm. understand. I think we have we have a mandate and we have an opportunity for further defence cooperation. I think, however, to create what would be an EU army would not 
fly with many member states and would be detrimental to the project overall. And I think I think the point as well about the, the badly trained soldiers and the failure, the effectiveness of the CU Army would also have to be questioned as well. How would you integrate armies that had been separate for so, such a long time and just the, the logistics of that? So I think, you know, we have a mandate for further defence cooperation very, very clearly, of course, and that makes sense. But I think we have to be very, very careful and we have to ensure that we maintain uh, Irish neutrality at all times in that regard. And if we, we want to go further in that mission, we have to make sure that we have a mandate for that. But I'd also think that like this idea of, you know, boots on ground and guns and tanks is not necessarily the future of uh, military conflict. The future of military conflict is going to be cyber cyber warfare, yeah. space. Mm-hmm. Like that's where the future is is going to be. Mm-hmm. And like Ireland is situates itself as a te- as a, Ireland situates itself as a tech hub. How like the EU is the only person looking out for GD with uh, information control and processes processing of information, mm-hmm. keeping it in 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 uh, the European Union. The technical ability that we need to be able to legislate that kind of thing, mm. it has to come from a really high up and really in-depth analysis, which the European Union is able to do. Arguably, Irish legislatures are not able to do that. And uh, I think, you know, the military aspect needs to be cyber protection as well to protect. Yeah, I think, I think prote- we definitely all agree cyber, here yeah. that that has to be addressed. And, yeah. and like, like the German army, the French army, the British army, they have cyber uh, sector, you know, it used to be uh, land, sea and air. Now it's land, sea and air and cyber. Mm-hmm. And like that's another element of the that we would he- benefit hugely from in Ireland, I think from Ireland the EU, has, EU army. Ireland has far more indicative problems though than even that. I mean, we've yeah. got to really pay our soldiers first before we can do that. Yeah. Anna, final word on that. Yeah, um, I suppose, you know, the, the threat of kind of cyber terrorism is certainly something that has, you know, um, has arisen um, certainly in this kind of new age of, of technology. Um, I think, again, uh, you know, You'd have to ask kind of members of Angarda Shikona, and you know, there's a department in there that is looking at, I suppose, at you know that element and and I suppose protections. But you know, of course, there have been you know um, uh, hack, hacking, and there has been you know um, uh, central systems hacked into. And I suppose when you have a, I suppose a globalized world where we are all interconnected, you know, if there's a hack in in some country, you know, data you know from Ireland can get leaked or, or can. So I, I suppose you know we need to I suppose come together. Um, I suppose. In terms of, and there there are many like um, you know forums where uh, cyber terrorism, um, you know, where leaders who are kind of um, in those kind of power positions can come together. So in, would you in be in favour of say a cross European uh, correlation of that in terms of correlation certainly yeah. and cooperation? Like yeah. we need that. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that, that necessarily. It's not necessarily going to impact on armies and, 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 no, and but, yeah. but by nature of the fact, it's a central organisation certainly. You know, um, you know, s- set up uh, to I suppose maybe specifically um, look into that and then have you know, people who obviously know the Irish kind mm. of system and people from our... Chris? Mm. Uh, for me, it's the only issue that uh, overall I'm in favour of a European type of army uh, is who's going to command this army. Mm. It will be the European Parliament, it will be the Commission, who will be yes. uh, running this army. That's the yes. foremost yeah. issue. Who do they answer that, to? Yeah, yeah. Who do they answer? That's where you come in with a nation. Who it's got to be a nation style. Who do yeah. they answer to? And who decides if they're going to take an action or not? Uh, apart from that, the reason I'm uh, in favour uh, overall in, for an army is because I want to uh, diminish the influence of NATO in, in Europe and, of course, uh, the United States. Uh, Europe cannot cannot have uh, its own foreign policy as long as it's at, too attached to America. I mean, mm-hmm. we, 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 uh, if America decides to have go on war, uh, we have to support them. I don't want to support every American war, so why? why I completely why, agree. Yeah. Why should I be obliged? And if coming from Greece, we are one of the states that um, 
we contributed too much in, 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 in it. According, uh, compared with uh, GDP, we have to uh, contribute too much in the NATO budget. We are one of the countries who fulfill after the second country of America that pays uh, full uh, its uh, GDP, GDP obligations uh, payments into the NATO budget. And we are obliged to, to spend a lot of money into to buying weapons and army, uh, army industry uh, from uh, America, Germany and France. Uh, I would like to, to see that uh, gone or at least limited. So that's why I'm hoping if the situation in the uh, uh, European army of some, some sort is formed, then we can limit and demilitarize Europe and help countries like Greece that are on the, on the borders. I, I, exactly, I agree. I think it's very easy, like an, uh, an periphery, I, I, like small island that's like cozy with the UK, France, Scandinavia. We're not that Canada. cozy. We're not that cozy with <laughs> the yeah. English anymore. So yeah. maybe and we should US. be looking at something ours. Yeah. I, th I think I realistically, think our relationships with those countries are incredibly important, and that relationship between the UK is mm. something that you know needs to survive. It will um, survive, though. I'm this, sure. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I think that's why it's so yeah. easy for us to maintain this neutral, this neutral stance, and that's why people are cozy with it because but it's, do you not understand it's head in the sand, and all the Americans and the British when you look, sorted out. When you look back at the history of of the state, do you not understand where that comes from? Like you know. That this you know, state I, I do has, this state has seen a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of turmoil, and I suppose you know um, we don't want to go back to. I suppose you I know, think there was an element of a, we're not going to become what happened to us as well. We'd never have any any desire to become a colonial power mm. in a foreign country, and I think that's very much at the heart of the state as well. Mm. And there's mm. also logi true, yeah. logistic aspects as well. We are we are, we are quite a wealthy country, mm. but we are a wealthy country that does not require spending on military. Um, issues like mm. as such so that's why neutrality suits Ireland which is what I want to just go on to next because we do seem to have a very unique aspect of us in Europe particularly now um, with regards to the rise in populism mm -hmm. we don't seem to have a far right element when it comes to mm. um party politics now there are some who would say in certain parties represented here there is a far right element but look we're not going to get into too much detail on mm. that because obviously you guys are going to discuss that here but i want your opinions on the growth of far right populism um here in ireland now i'm going to start with you connor because there mm. is uh, some critics of Fine Gael would say mm -hmm. particularly in young Fine Gael, that yeah. there is some elements of it that are on the rise within the youth and i want to give you an opportunity to speak about that today so with regards to um far-right populism what, what, what do you what do you think about it here in europe and sorry in here in ireland and in europe i, th I think we're, we're incredibly lucky in ireland that it, it hasn't gained any real electoral traction mm -hmm. they are shouting quite loud there's a few names we could name that you know are in the papers and things like that there i think in terms of far-right politics engagement with young people it doesn't hold very much traction with young people young people naturally will hang around the left center left area i think that's just where the bulk of young people are at the moment and i think there is an issue of anybody who engages in sort of maybe center right politics they there there is an element of people who may try and infiltrate that aspect and try and bring their far right views in that regard in terms of far right i don't think we're in any danger in ireland from that thankfully but we cannot be complacent and i think we have to ensure that we have young people engaged in the political process engaged in sensible centrism politics in that it's it's something that's socially looking towards a very progressive state which we're lucky enough to have and i think if you look at ireland um in the past 30 years i'd say policies of, of parties in the 30 years ago would be deemed quite far right in that they're the regressive social attitudes as well so we've come such a long way and i think we have to 
protect that and we have to ensure that we don't get complacent as well. Yeah, but, but I, I think it's a lot of the parties on the left um, that have been pushing that progressive agenda and having that representation in there. Um, I think if you look at the current government, a lot of the policies are incredibly right-wing and incredibly... Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I'd say Finnegan has a, quite a strong track record. a chance to say oh, it now. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm interested here. Quite a strong track record in... It's a strong record in progressive social issues, definitely. Again, to Kenny, some of the laws he passed in terms of traveller rights, in terms of rights of transgender people, was incredibly progressive for his time. And of I'm course, sorry, I, I feel like, um, you know, playing catch up or saying, you know, that, you know, Fine Gael is, you know, leading the fight in terms of transgender rights and traveller rights, I think is actually, um, you know, disparaging to all those people who, you know, back in the 80s, you know, parties like the uh, Labour yeah. Party that were talking about these issues that weren't being listened to by the membership. So when we talk about, you know, um, Fine Gael, you know, having some sort of, you know, great eureka moment well, I, um, in, in terms of, you know, progressive agenda, who was putting that on the agenda? I, I did, who I, was speaking about that? I, back, who, who was a party? Um, the Labour Party opposed the introduction of the Eighth Amendment in 1983. Mm -hmm. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael didn't. Well, that, that, I, I accept I didn't say we were at the forefront of those rights. I'm saying simply in government we have legislated for those issues and there has to be a lot of credit given to a government who can legislate for those issues. And I accept Fine Gael was wrong in the 80s to not argue against the implementation of that and that's very, very yes. fair as well. But, it, but it, is, it is progressive parties that are pushing the agenda that are speaking about these issues now mm -hmm. and that they aren't being looked at and then, you know, um, it's easy for so as Fianna Gael to come in and take credit you know, or try and take credit for um, the work done in Repeal and of course there were many Fine Gael politicians um, you know, that, uh, that you know, did a lot of great work and I can recognise mm -hmm. that as well um, uh, you know, when you talk about Kate O'Connell and Simon Harris and, mm -hmm. and you know um, it was important for, I suppose, the parties to come together and to be united on that front mm -hmm. um, but you know when you're talking about you know parties that you know uh, I suppose putting those issues on the agenda and talking about progressive policy policies you know we are the ones that are bringing um, Fianna Fáil into the 20 or Fine Gael into the 21st century and you know we were the ones who were putting that on the agenda long before that was ever a thought and the fact you have to do that is indicative of failures that we have to address and have to change from a young branch as well I feel that we have to look at that from a social aspect as to where we want this party to go and uh, we have to make sure that we are party, at the but parties have to stay true to their identity though Anna. I mean they can't if, 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 if uh, Fine Gael didn't remain in some way conservative they, the they would lose their identity Yes, they've got to stay true to their to their party politics in some senses. Yes, of course, but uh, you know those issues are t hurting people. Those policies not are not necessarily hurt, far are right, though, are they? But the um, the Eighth Amendment. We're not talking about kicking people out of the country because of their color. We're no. talking about part, we're talking about far right politics. Here. Yes. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about say, you know, the fine balance between you know the, the certain policies. We're talking about say what the likes of say the five star movement in Italy are implicating. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to say as well, like, I think I kind of do agree with Anna there because I think it's easy for Fianna Gael to, you know, claim credit for that because I, the word that I actually kind of used was legi we legislated for that, but they they brought it to referendum. So they, they didn't bring it through the legislative I, I, house in the normal sense. So Labour actually, who had been talking about this, you know, since 1983, like they all were finally, now we can actually vote for what we want to vote. So to say that Fianna Gael brought this about... Yes. It was a referendum, so I'm not sure if I... It was wrong in 83, it was wrong in 2018. In regards to bringing it to referendum, I think bringing something to referendum is a massive risk for any government. 
If you lose that referendum, especially if you've legislated for a side and you lose that side, it completely undermines the government's authority. So I think there was an element of risk by Fine Gael, and there has to be credit given to the party in government for bringing that. When Garrick brought those reforming social uh, referendums, which he lost, that undermined his government, mm. undermined the Fine Gael government at the time as well. So there is an element of risk that is brought when bringing a referendum for a government as well. Like I'm not going to say Fine Gael is completely responsible for Pilate, because of course we are not. And I think the Pilate referendum was a fantastic illustration of people from very various sides of the political argument coming together for a cause that was really relevant and really just in Ireland at the time. Okay, I don't want to go into a bash for the game. Yeah. Oh, this, <laughs> this, this is a little, good fun, right? Like, yeah. A little bit unfair. <laughs> and also, I'm trying to keep the, I'm trying to keep the, uh, I'm trying to keep the topic on a, on a mm. more European wide yeah, setting. Can, yeah. can I come yeah. back to so on the, Connor, the far right uh, point? Sorry, Connor's, Connor's yes. had enough on the, on the, <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, Carl, you, you wanted it. I know, I think I, when I speak with lots of people, you know, especially young people, I think they just kind of consider it, oh, we all kind of believe the same thing. We all kind of like, we're pro-liberal stuff. Uh, and that's kind of, we're all kind of like in the same mindset about those type of things. And everyone kind of says, oh, in Ireland, we don't have any far right parties. That's kind of the consensus. And I used to think that too. But now mm -hmm. that I've kind of come out in favor of, uh, you know, expressing, you know, I want to, you know, don't like Brexit and I want to keep more Europe in it going forward, I think, and I've took that to Twitter and stuff, the amount of vitriol I have actually received like a, from people who support Nigel Farage in Ireland, Irish people who support, <laughs> and these, these are young people um, in Ireland who are basically flag-waving Brexiteers, like iRexits, um, Identity and Irish Freedom Party, like yeah, you know, exactly. they, the but the, are they, are they a small? They're, they're, yeah, they're very small, and and you know, it's uh, I suppose you know I, I would have said earlier that you know they haven't you know gained a lot of electoral tra traction, and you know we would hope I suppose you know that that wouldn't be the case. Where's the um, funding coming from as well? Mm. Yeah, indeed, and I think that there, there needs to be a huge um, look into transparency on that, and mm. and there's outside outside parties and outside interests Moscow. that are funding that. Um, I think that uh, you know. Like, like I said, the spectre of kind of far-right politics looms and we have to look at, you know, I suppose, why is, th is that? Is that a fear? Is that, you know, um, a fear that, you know, lies, I suppose, in a lot of the heartlands of the country and, and kind of, you know, fear that they, they're, you know, their rights aren't or their voices aren't being heard. I suppose, you know, we have to look at the issues that lead to people either um, joining those parties or, or voting for them, you know. So that that is a concern, obviously, for me. But, you know, thankfully, I think it's important to note that, you know, they haven't received a lot of traction and they do seem to be, you know, very kind of, you know, weaker in this country than they would be in, in other countries where there's that is more There's always been a, a very threat. strong left in mm. Ireland, though, hasn't there? I mean, traditionally, the, the, mm. you know, there's always been a strong element of yes, left-wing politics in Ireland. And that's been a really good it, yeah, but I, I us, suppose that's it? been in, in kind of, you know, um, contrast to, I suppose, what would have been very conservative governments mm. we would have seen, um, you know, and conservative administrations. Mm -hmm. um, and, you yeah, know, slowly true. but surely we are, I suppose, you know, coming Catholic into conservatism. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. You know, the, the kind of image of Eamon Debler kissing the hand of, you know, Cardinal, <laughs> Cardinal McQuaid, you know, um, that, that kind of, you know, that link with church and state. I think mm. there's a lot of issues surrounding church and state um, that, that need to be kind of spoken about. But, um, you know, getting back to, I suppose, the point on on kind of the rise of the far right, I think, you know, that, that is an element that we do need to kind of be worried about in this country because certainly I've seen a lot more, there are a lot more splinter groups and there's a lot more, um, you know, uh, independent, you know, um, politicians and, and members who, from Identity Ireland and the Irish Freedom Party that are kind of, you know, having those conversations and, and you know. But they're not taking those conversations to Europe. No, Thank they're you. not. They're not. Yeah, they, yeah. it's not translating they're, they're, into electoral you know, success, and, yeah, and you know, yeah. thankfully, the Irish yeah. electorate is, is rejecting yeah. that yeah. Um, ideology, yeah. which is important to see. I mean, you have say, like for example, 
the you know certain uh, rogue journalists they like to call themselves <laughs> you know um, getting she never on, turned getting, up with the count I was very disappointed yeah, getting onto Twitter you know and like she's been she's now become uh, you know a pariah in, in the whole of Ireland really I, I, uh, I think technology is very very important here in that's the just about to say and yeah, it, it's yeah. like it, it's like 30 years ago if you want to go and set up a it makes party, you more important you, than you'd you have really to go are. and print posters you'd yeah. have to arrange meetings you'd have yeah. to try and get your voice heard and if you didn't have a message nobody would listen to you I think, I think we have to look about um you know uh, people that are giving platforms to um these speakers like uh, you know we yeah. have we haven't mentioned her name yet but you know and she was a candidate in in the um the european election in, she's got a right in the number dublin, of votes as well. in, the, in the dublin region mm. so you know of course you know she well, probably you know, based on the fact that she was actually uh, she did a have a decent her, journalist at one point and she would have been respected as did, a decent yeah journalist. I, I there are but there are followers there i think we have to look at you know the fact that there, there are people there and there were people voting you know mm. might have been a small amount and and so we have to look at what are the factors that lead people down the path of of our right i think that you mm. know there there are lots of um i suppose you know social and economic factors that you know um force people well, that's I true people into, those, always into look, those factions people always look to the extremes in times of crisis as well college yeah. can i ask you um do you obviously a very you're very open party so you do get a lot of people and i'm sure there is people who believe in federalism but also believe in a right-wing type of federalism um have you come I across did, that? I don't, no, I disagree with that. Well, we've come, we've come across it. Really? Well, but yeah. from but I, from what the social in, now you cannot take for granted who ex, who says what in mm. uh, social media. But there are some uh, f- federalists who are very a federalist, yeah, but yeah. Not, not involved. Yeah. No, 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 no what I'm saying no, is, no, what I'm saying is, have no, you come no. across? Would there be people in your party who would be maybe have? You say that you know you're not left or right. Yeah, so well do you have people in your party who would have, say, you know, views extreme of extreme right wing views? No, no I not think extreme right wing views, but maybe more conservative views to what the general idea is. Generally, our party is, uh, I guess, liberal. I guess was kind of we're not supposed to say that. You're from all different spectrums. Aha, we got you. Give it time. Progressive, progressive, I suppose, is is the word that we like to be called, like the progressive pan Europeans. That's our main kind of uh driving force and uh so no we we don't have right wing um element as much there are people who like who are involved who would be economists and especially from maybe northern european countries where they're a bit more hawkish in terms of the monetary policy that the eurozone has um i tend to kind of agree with some of their arguments in terms of eurozone monetary policy but um yeah, I think uh, no. In terms of that, that's the kind of the right. If I, I don't, I don't like that you know distinction. I, and I've said that before. Like they're the people who would be more conservative economically. I would say. I think. I think uh, illustrative of the fact is that you know. Uh, far right or far left are generally anti-European projects. So I think it, to ensure that the European project survives and thrives, we have to ensure that the centre holds and in regards to be that centre yeah, right okay. and left, that moderate policies mm. that I think we're also compromised from and, everyone. And you can see that on the far right or anti-European, even. Jeremy Corbyn, who he's left, he's quite left wing of what traditionally would have been Labour in the early 2000s, New Labour in Toronto, whatever. So you see his sort of hesitation for the European project as well. So I think that's why we have to ensure that the centre does hold for the sake of the European project as well and be very, very wary of the far right and indeed the far left as well mm. in that regard. On the last question of the day, 
we're going to go on the big question now the one that shall the word that shall not be mentioned brexit implications um <laughs> we're gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna spend all day on this one but uh we, we we do need to address this okay guys so what do you think the irish government should be doing on the with and, and the eu should be doing next i mean we can't go into brexit because the the, op- the obvious idea is that it's changing day by day so by the time we probably produce this podcast there's probably something else drastic but let's look let's look long term okay um let's assume that the the britain is going to leave the european union at some point or another what exactly do you think that the irish government and the eu should be doing next i'm going to start with you carl well the official vault line is that we are uh, in favor of another referendum in the uk Mm -hmm. and ideally the uk votes to stay in the european union and then hence it's all avoided um that's the official line however how likely that is is not very likely ideally we would like places that you know have voted to stay in democratically to stay in so northern ireland scotland look at accommodating a way for them to be able to stay in the eu um however we also are aware that uh that might not sit well with other members of our vault members in, in the UK. So that's kind of my, my, that's not an official line. So it's, it's difficult when you're a pan-European party to, you know, when countries come into loggerheads like that to try and have an overarching line. However, my own personal view is that uh, Northern Ireland should stay in the EU, whether it's in the customs region or fully just in the EU. Um, I think that would be the best overall outcome. Obviously, I'm Europhile, so I think the European Union is good. So Northern Ireland leaving, I think, would be uh, a travesty. So the backstop agreement is your preferred option? I think, yeah, the backstop is necessary. Like, I think nobody wants to go back to having a border. Even the UK, even the Conservatives don't want to have a border. The EU doesn't want it's It's a ridiculous situation. I heard somebody say that no deal is the only option that nobody wants therefore it's probably going to be the most likely mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think that's extremely unfortunate and I think this nationalistic again it goes back to nationalistic ideals everybody fighting their own corner you know horse trading for, for national ideas rather than just taking a step back and saying okay what's better overall for everybody here what's the best way we can overcome this and uh, um, ideally another referendum and if not Northern Ireland stays in the EU Connor Brexit uh, because Brexit. that's what it's it's just Brexit because now in terms of the long term future of this island after Brexit you know the deal I, I like I don't think Britain will rem- will change their mind I don't think and if they do the forces that will be unleashed over there I think mm. the, the, the Pandora's box has been opened in Britain mm. in terms of the long term future I think you know May's deal presented Northern Ireland with a very unique opportunity like we could have been Monaco lads like we could have been you know you would have had access <laughs> you would have had access to the British market and also actually like if you were an American multinational you'd be like where am I going to set up where am I going to get access to the European Union no, and no. the UK market we could all be dry. it'd be great the, th- the thing is and I think Dave McWilliams said this quite well in his podcast the DUP never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity they, they are so blinded by this the protection of nationalism and the protection of what they see as their own identity that they ignore these economic opportunities in terms of long term for Ireland as an island it's incredibly complex because you have you know this thing stuck at the top and we have to try and deal with that for further European integration for Ireland as well I, I, I just think that Ireland has been shown so much solidarity by the European project and it's almost if there is positive to be taken out of this whole Brexit mess is that it has enhanced Ireland's 
belief in the European project. You know, like I'm sure many people were worried after Brexit that we're going to see fractures in Brussels. And Brussels has been incredibly resolute. The entire EU27 has been incredibly resolute. A few mumblings here and there, which is only natural with this uh, organization that size. But I think it's very, very illustrative of the solidarity that the European project has for small nations. And that has done it wonders in terms of its its uh, future and I believe that's there's positives to be taken out of it. But in terms of predicting what will happen, that's anybody's guess. If I knew that, I'd be down Paddy Power putting money on the option. So I, I don't know, really. What about you? What, what about me? Yeah. Um, well, let's hear if, if there's a hard border, I won't be able to come down to the podcast. Uh, I, I, you know... It's smuggle you it, I smoke, <laughs> Put me in the back of the car. No, it, it, it is, I think, for the first time in a long time, it, it comes and goes because it's over such a, a long period of time and you're getting on with your own life as well, you know? Mm. But there is times when I am worried, I am concerned. I think the, the saving grace is my Irish passport. That's mm. that's one thing that guarantees that I at least cling to those rights. Mm. But there is that element of I live there. There is that element of a possible return to violence that people just don't get. You know, like I'm saying, if you put if you put watchtowers, if you put even a camera there, yeah. people will attack it. And then you put some per person there to guard it, people will attack that per person. And then you have all the politicians who said there were no trouble, no border, saying, oh, I'm very, very sad about the loss of this. That people do not realize the fire they're playing with and yeah. we have to be incredibly incredibly careful to protect that peace and i think credit to the irish government and credit to all parties in ireland there has been a very very unified oh, front yeah. apart from a few little mumblings from lisa chambers which the which absolutely did annoys the hell out of the brits oh they can't take it they thought they thought oh Fianna Fáil trying we're to crack it they're going to crack but ireland has been resolute because they understand there's something more at risk here than anything to do with party politics and i just wish i just wish people in britain would realize that and i just wish uh, people in the north would realize that well i don't think people in the north, a specific party in the north would realize mm. that that there is so much at risk here and we are in danger of setting the north and indeed this island back centuries yeah, um, I think, you know, like a lot of members, you know, uh, there's a lot of Brexit fatigue, I think, about, you know, what is happening today, what is happening this week. And I would, uh, you know, of course, take an interest in these issues. I suppose, you know, it's important to remember that the majority of people in Northern Ireland um, voted no. Um, and, you know, that, uh, you know, it is important that we kind of look out for the interests of people in the north of this island. Um, I think that there's a lot of power vested in the Conservative Party and the DUP, um, which only speak for a very small amount of people. Um, I think that uh, the referendum in the UK has certainly divided um, the nation. And there, you know, we have to also remember that, you know, the, the result was, you know, in favour of, you know, pulling out of the EU. And I think uh, a lot of, um, there was a lot of mistruths, certainly from um, that, uh, you know, the Brexiteers during that referendum that I think are, are reprehensible and a lot of the, the people were lied to as well. I think that uh, in terms of Ireland and, you know, um, I suppose, you know, it's important that uh, a lot of the negativity um, we need to mitigate, I suppose, the from the um, trouble that can be caused by, you know, if there is a no deal Brexit, which it seems that we're careering towards a no deal Brexit um, or that, you know, we're going to crash out or the UK is going to crash out um, without having reached an agreement um, on this or, or, or indeed, you know, the UK government has not provided any um, strong alternatives and in fact you know I think that that has been mentioned both in Brussels and, and last week when um, nations are meeting in, in New York um, the fact that their their UK hasn't come up with any kind of viable um, solutions to the backstop issue um, and I think that uh, you know we are seeing extensions after extensions you know the fact that the referendum was in 2016 and we're still talking about it and we're looking at possibly another extension being granted <laughs> I mean I think it's important you know uh, or I think you know leadership in the UK should see that maybe it is not viable 
um, and it is not, um, I suppose, the the best um, time to pull out of the of the EU when you consider that there isn't is terrible leadership in the UK on this issue that they don't have any credible alternatives and that there is no deal. Is this the best? best thing for their nation um, certainly it's not the best thing for Ireland and it'll have huge implications on us if indeed um, the UK does pull out on the 31st which you know hopefully um, they won't but you know. we'll have a vocal show of hands are we going to ever see because of Brexit a border poll Connor uh, this is something I've been asked about a lot and I think of course, yeah. uh, a border poll right now would be an absolute nightmare and mm-hmm. you know listen I, 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 listen, I'm an Irish nationalist as well I understand that you know you watch Michael Collins on Saturday night in RT and you're like yeah it's going to Butterpool I can't believe the, the sort of short-sightedness by Sinn Féin calling for that border pool. I think it's incredibly reckless because surely deep down they know the effect that would have on this island especially the north like if you wake up in the morning like that you've seen the violence and the the unrest that happened with a flag coming down off City Hall. Can you mm. imagine if there was a border pool in the morning? Mm. So I think the call for it now is incredibly reckless. I, my 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 presence of I think a border pool is incredibly polarizing. It's incredibly dangerous. It, it would be very very similar to the Brexit referendum. My approach to sort of the reunification of Ireland, as it were, is inc- incremental change. It's a word I use quite a lot, or a mm. phrase I use quite a lot. I believe. Those we slowly strengthen those cross-border institutions that we have in the Good Friday Agreement, you know, the North South Ministerial Council, because that's incredible. That's basically joint sovereignty that we have. So like we strengthen those organisations. And if the time comes when we have a reunification of this island, it will be a new state. And I think the South's not ready for that. The North's definitely not ready for that. And I think a border poll now would not be a quick fix to Brexit. If anything, it's just throwing even more petrol on a very, very bad fire. Certainly already. not because of Brexit. I mean, we shouldn't have to be forced to come together because of exactly. Brexit. Exactly. I think we the shouldn't... The most humiliating, way, humiliating exactly. way to become a nation again. And, yeah. and an important kind of pillar of the Good Friday Agreement as well, which is, is talked about a lot, um, a big part of that was identity hmm. and was oh, giving, yeah. giving an identity to people in Northern Ireland who um, wish to identify as Irish or wish to identify as British mm-hmm. um, and that that would be, you know, that was sent Central to that agreement, and uh, you know the UK has a responsibility as party to that agreement. Um, you know to, I suppose, uphold that. And if this is a disintegration of that result and of, of that agreement, which was such an important document, which I feel, um, you know, is not talked about enough, or, or the importance of that document for Northern Ireland is not, um, you know, central to, um, I suppose, you know, the thinking over there. I think that, you know, that needs to be kind of, you know, placed centrally above anything else. I yeah, I fully agree. Vault Europa have an official line on this as well. And it's that Vault Europa, including Vault UK, stand fully by the Good Friday Agreement that was agreed between Ireland and the UK. And the fact that it's trying to be undermined now by forces that be in the UK, uh, we think is extremely worrisome. I think it's just, it's a bit like Northern Ireland is is the way we were talking about this one. Northern Ireland is a bit like a child. And you, mm-hmm. Britain and Ireland, as mm-hmm. the two parents, when they when there's the two fighting, they come and sort of. It's like when Bertie and Tony walked in whenever the assembly collapsed and they cleared up the mess again. Mm-hmm. You have now one of the parents going, "Hey, yeah. You have one of the co-guarantors of this agreement. Like, whatever your thoughts on the British government, the British establishment, they were always fairly sensible in looking out for their own interests, at least. And would you say that the United States is the grandmother's going to be seen on? <laughs> a wee bit, yeah. You know, like, like, Bill's not flying in on the 7% anymore, you know? And, and, and there's, there's, there is, like, that, 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 that agreement is a fantastic piece of mm-hmm. legislation. It's, if you read through it, it's very, does it very short. Does supersede Brexit in every single way? It does, in my opinion. I think peace is more valuable like whatever your problems with the good for agreement and there is problems in you know, power sharing mm-hmm. it doesn't work at times as well it, it's issues like that the fact that there aren't people dying on the streets up there 
is something that we have to protect. Which is a very recent reality yeah. for a lot of people. Like I, like I was born in 97, so I was incredibly lucky that I grew up without majority of yes. violence. I but voted in the GFA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I said yes to the GFA. Like, like, so. like my, my father, like, like, and I think this goes back to the whole border issue as well. Like he very, very well remembers soldiers mm. on the streets and he remembers his friends, uh, people mm. he knew that were, were either injured or killed. For, and like it was a horrible, horrible time. Mm. And I think... That is a bit forgotten about in the Brexit debate. Like, I think, was it Kate Hoey said something about, well, we can maybe just rewrite the Good Friday Agreement. The fact that we even touched that, like, that is a, such an important document. And Neil Richmond says it as well quite a lot. It's largely the United Nations and International Peace Treaty. And Britain's a co-guarantor of that. And, and they have to respect And the that. US and the EU, I suppose, were also, you know, um, very important in bringing Yeah, the European Union is so vital. Okay, guys, thank you very much for thank coming you. along today. Cheers, it's been a you. really you, interesting Ken. debate. I hope you enjoyed it. To all our listeners, we've had um, three guests. We've had uh, Coggle Cairns from Volt Era. We've had Anna Herivan. Hevron. Hevron, I'm very sorry, Don't worry. Anne. Don't worry. <laughs> from Labour Youth. We've had Conor McArdle from Young Finnegale. Thank you all very <laughs> much you for can. coming along. Uh, you've been listening to episode 13 of uh, Europeanized Euro Chat. My name has been Ken Sweeney. I am chief editor of Europeanized. I've had alongside me my colleague. Christus Museveris. Yeah, and Christus has been sitting back here and enjoying himself for the most of the day. It was a very interesting conversation, yeah. so nice to listen to. Yeah, it's great to have um, all of the uh, youth of Ireland come along today in all their various different guises and their different perspectives and different social aspects. Um, thank you very much for listening. You can catch our podcasts on europeunited.eu. Uh, we are also on Twitter at europeunited.eu. And finally, our Facebook page is also europeunited.eu. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you again. Take care. Goodbye.